Hey, it's Kristen. You're listening to Rational in Portland. I'm your host, Kristen. Thanks so much for joining me on Rational in Portland. I'm really excited about this episode because I was able to meet again and become acquainted with somebody I haven't seen in 21 years, Josh Marquis. I met Josh Marquis in 2002 at the University of Oregon Law School when I was a law student there. And as part of my graduate teaching fellowship program through the Wayne Moore Center, I helped put together a symposium on the death penalty. At that time, Josh was the DA for Clatsop County on the Oregon coast, and he was very outspoken about his pro-death penalty positions. Those of us who were part of the Waynemore Center had identified a number of speakers that were going to help us with this conference. It was openly anti-death penalty, although it wasn't labeled that way. But certainly all of our speakers were very anti-death penalty. We had the former Republican governor of Illinois, George Ryan, the late Senator Hatfield, sister Helen Prejean, who was played by Susan Sarandon, of course, in the brilliant movie Dead Man Walking, Professor Stephen Bright from Georgetown, who's now a visiting professor at Yale Law School, and Professor Charles Ogletree of Harvard, who was visiting University of Oregon as a Wayne Morse chair in in residence. And he was essentially my boss as part of my graduate teaching fellowship. He had served as Anita Hill's lawyer during the Clarence Thomas confirmation hearings. And Professor Ogletree is very outspoken against the death penalty. Josh, an alumni of the law school at the University of Oregon, had learned about the makeup of our panel and how anti-death penalty it was and that our panel was exclusively filled with these anti-death penalty advocates. Josh called Professor Ogletree and lobbied for a pro-death penalty speaker. See, the thing is, we were not explicit that it was an anti-death penalty symposium. It was just implied. But Josh felt that at least one pro-death penalty voice should be represented on this death penalty symposium. Since we were not explicit, and Professor Ogletree challenged Josh to find one, and he found one. He came up with Robert Blecker, a professor from New York Law School. And it was a much better conference because Josh found Professor Blecker. Quick story about Governor Illinois George Ryan. The year he spoke at our symposium, he was embroiled in a scandal, as most governors from Illinois tend to be, and he was later convicted of federal corruption charges and spent more than five years in federal prison and seven months in home confinement. He was succeeded by Rob Blagojevich, Anyway, back to Josh, our guest. Josh is a lifelong Democrat and even served as a superdelegate. He testified in front of Congress regarding the death penalty, making arguments for the death penalty, and are questioning by then-Senator, now-President Biden. I'll link to that video in the show notes. 
Even though Josh and then Senator Biden's exchange was heated, Josh said that Senator Biden came up to him afterwards and complimented him on the exchange and that they had a great time together off camera. I remain anti-death penalty, which is part of why I had such a good time talking to a pro-death penalty Democrat who has thought a lot about this issue, certainly much more than I have. I ended up connecting with Josh and getting to know him better after he heard the Richard Sheverton episode of this podcast and he reached out and I asked him to come on. He kindly did. He walked into the room. We started talking and we never stopped. So the podcast begins my conversation after I had asked him about his earlier work in regard to the death penalty. And he talks about a debate that he did at University of California, Berkeley. Here's former Clatsop County DA, Josh Marquis. I was flying, I was back east for some reason, and these students from the Associated Students of Berkeley called and said, um, would you be willing to uh, debate this uh, famous law professor from Stanford Law School about the death penalty? And I said, well, yeah, I could change my flight, and, you know, if, if you don't mind putting me up for one night. So I go to this thing at Berkeley. There's about 900 people. And the historical context was kind of interesting. Um a man named Stanley Tukey Williams had just been executed. And the name probably won't ring any bells now, but back in 2009, he was a very big deal. He had been on California's death row for almost 30 years. And it was not for the four murders that he'd personally committed that he was famous. Those were the Yang family and a young man at a, a convenience store, all of whom he had shot to death. It was that he was one of the founders of the Crips gang and was probably uh, one of the founders. One of the founders. So he was probably morally responsible for the deaths of thousands of young black men and who knows how many other members of primarily the black community, but certainly others. But he sort of recast himself as a uh, children's author on death row. And there was quite a, a momentum to oh save Tukey. And, you know, uh, Bishop Tutu in South Africa begged the president, who didn't have the power, the only person who could have commuted uh, anybody's sentence on death row, is the governor of that particular state, which at the time um, was... Uh, uh, not Gavin Newsom, um, the guy who got recalled. I can't remember his name at the moment. Um, Gray. Um, in any event, um, it was a big deal. So the LA Times called me up and said, would you be willing to do, we're doing a special op-ed section. And so I said, sure. So they wanted Gray to- Davis. Right, exactly, Gray Davis. And Gray Davis was not willing to, to commute his sentence. So the execution of 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 this guy goes forward and and it was the focus of which this debate was about so most of the debate was what it usually is about the death penalty which is is it racist inherently does it in fact is it is it morally appropriate does it does it actually prevent any other than the specific deterrent of obviously eliminating that particular murder does it have any greater use and all of the the moral and legal and other questions that relate to it. It's a, it, it's a debate that has, you know, consumed a lot of America in academy and the, for 60 years since uh, the, the last wave of, of death penalty abolition, which happened, ironically, the last state 
to vote, where people voted to abolish the death penalty was Oregon in 1964. Since 1964, not one single state has voted out the death penalty. And in fact, four or five states have specifically refused to recall the death penalty, and they're not the states you might think. You'd say, oh, that'd be Texas and Georgia. No, they are Wisconsin, Nebraska, and California twice in the 2000s, both attempts to uh, repeal the death penalty and both rejected by popular vote. Now, the death penalty, which at one time had, each state gets to make that decision. At one point, I think there might have been 41 or 42 states with the death penalty. At the moment, it's only 30. But what's interesting about that is the numbers came down not because the people of those states chose to abolish it, but because either governors decided they just weren't going, they were going to refuse to sign any execution orders, or in the case of Illinois, a lame duck, primarily Democratic legislature decided on its way out it was going to abolish it. Uh, But the interesting part is that when you ask voters, and I remember in the, uh, when Timothy McVeigh was executed, the man who was responsible for blowing up uh, the uh, Murrah building in Oklahoma City, that terrible mass murder where 167 people died. He was tried as a federal prisoner, uh, sentenced to death, and essentially waived his appeals. And my wife um, persuaded me to watch C-SPAN because they were doing um, interviews with people from the English language versions of Radio France, Deutsche Welle, and Radio Italiana, the the foreign networks, about what was the coverage of the death penalty from Europe and America. And a guy who was the head of Amnesty International, who by coincidence about a year later I would have dinner with and speak in in Brussels, um, said in sort of broken English, well, in Europe... (laughs) The leaders are ahead of the people, but in America, the people are ahead of the leaders. Now, I think what he was trying to talk about was actually the difference between a republic and a democracy, but I think he got it right, and that is that we believe in melding justice and democracy in America in a way that's not done anywhere else in the world, not even England. The idea of a jury is very democratic, small d. It's the idea that justice resides in the common man, that we don't rely on the one, the judge. We rely on the many or the 12 people that are selected to represent the community. And although there are tides in feeling about the death penalty, there's only been one period in the last 60 or 70 years, probably in the late 1960s, when a majority of Americans opposed the death penalty. It probably reached a a, a real high of about 80% in the early to mid-1980s. And many people would like to believe that its you know support for the death penalty has evaporated. That's I actually, thought that it had. Have you seen no. any recent polling on that? Oh yes, there's there's a Pew poll from 2021 that's about 65 to 70 percent. It's all framed in how you ask the question. And yes, as, as, as most, most polls are. Yes. Right now, um, Gallup, uh, which is one of the worst in this particular case, asked the question this way. Should murderers get the death penalty? If you were to ask me that as a capital prosecutor, I'd say generally not. 
the vast majority of people I prosecuted for murder do not deserve the death penalty. Very few. What murders. is your personal line? My line is that the death penalty should exist for the worst of the worst. And it's not difficult, unfortunately, to invent a scenario where most people would probably say, I'd say, well, if someone grabbed your seven-year-old niece, daughter, granddaughter, and dragged her behind a bush, brutally raped her, and then slashed her throat, do you think that person should die? Now, some people maybe would say, no, that, that's not my place. That, I think that's most gone. would admit yes. Of course. Uh, and, and so the issue, not to make too cute a point of it, is, well, we've already established that the people are in favor of it. The question is, under what circumstances? And that's reasonable. Most murders... Um, literally 999 out of 1,000 do not merit the death penalty. They are what, to be brutal, are called 7-Eleven murders in law enforcement, meaning some junkie with a gun holds up a convenience store and is withdrawing from meth or something, and the poor guy who's the clerk makes the wrong move. The, the guy points the gun, pulls the trigger, and he kills somebody. And it's a murder in the course of a robbery. And it's, it's murder. It's a terrible crime. guy probably deserves some version of life in prison or maybe most of his life, but it's not appropriate for the death penalty. And so most states have tried to craft what are the worst of the worst. Well, how about murdering a child? Most of us agree with that. What about murdering a police officer in the course of their duties? We yes. used to agree with that. What about murdering a judge or juror because they're a judge or juror? Yep. What about mass murders, killing two, three, four people at once? Absolutely. Most people would. And, and so one of the questions, so if the question is asked that way, if the, the, uh, the, the pupil said, are there any circumstances in which someone who is convicted of murder should ever face the death penalty, the answer is 70 to 75% of Americans say yes. So you can you can twist the question. So that's you know, interesting. And I would not have guessed that. No, and and popular media and clearly the elites of our society, whether that's religious, educational, or political, I think. I mean, I, I grew up in a family. My father was a college professor. My mother was an artist. Well, your your parents were incredible. Had incredible pedigrees. Talk about that for a minute. Well, my my, my father was a refugee from Nazi Germany with his whole family. They were Jewish, um, ethnically more than religiously. And my grandfather was smart enough in 1933, right after Hitler was elected, um, to get the entire family and smuggle them to Los Angeles. And my father um, went to a very experimental college that only existed for about 25 years in rural North Carolina called Black Mountain College, which is quite famous in some circles now. And my mother was a 17-year-old uh, granddaughter of a Mormon polygamist from Utah. They, they couldn't have come from more different fields. And my mother studied with an artist named Joseph Albers, who's particularly famous for something called Homage to the Square, which a beautiful kind of painting. And my mother developed as a stained glass artist and worked in stained glass from probably age 30 till her late 80s. And there are churches and homes all up and down the West Coast from Los Angeles to Seattle that have her work in it. I'm lucky enough to have a couple pieces in my house, but I couldn't afford them. She was nice enough to gift them to me. So 
you know, I, I had and my father grew up speaking fluent German, Italian, French, and Latin. And uh, he got two Fulbrights, which are teaching fellowships that send you overseas. So I spent my... And very, very, very difficult to get. Apparently, I yes, certainly did. And, and so I spent my third grade year in a tiny little... Um, public school in the American sense, meaning it was run by the government, not the British version of a public school, which is really a private school. It gets complicated. But a little tiny school in the moors of Devon. And I'm, my parents are con- were convinced that any academic success I had was due to Ms. Upham, who was my third grade teacher. Um, and then, again, when I would have been in eighth grade, which is probably one of the worst years for boys and girls, I think, in existence. Mine would be ninth, but close enough. Okay, yeah. my seventh was pretty awful. But I was, <laughs> it was awful. I was spared eighth grade because I had my choice of going to an American military slash uh, diplomatic school in uh, Verona. There was a big air wow. base then. Or I, my parents said I could go to Italian public school, but I have to learn Italian. And I don't know how I got so smart so young, but I picked the Italian public school. So when I was 13, I went off every day, and the last time I spoke English was at about 7.30 when I said goodbye to my parents, and the next time I spoke English was at about 6 when I got home. And all my friends were Italian. I was the only American most of them had ever met. And so I didn't just attend a foreign school. I was literally enveloped in a foreign culture. And the Italians were just then experimenting with the idea of universal education where they would blend, uh, in other words, not track students. Um, For example, up until this would be the late 1960s, uh, kids from working class homes would be sent to trade schools where they could learn how to be machinists. Uh, that we were living outside a city that Americans call Turin, um, mm-hmm. Italians call it Torino, and it, it's where Fiat's made. It, it's it's not as beautiful. The shroud as, of the shroud of Turin. Of Turin yeah. Yes, it's which is nearly, I think in Milan now. Yeah, it's not not the northern cities. And it's as, actually very difficult to see. It, <laughs> it's very faded. I haven't I haven't seen it. <laughs> But, you know, the southern Italian cities like, you know, Florence and Rome and Naples, they're, they're much, in many ways, more beautiful. But it was, and I wasn't even in Torino. I was in a little, an ancient city called Chieri, which is about 5,000 years old, and it was about ten or 20,000. But my whole day was, you know, living, you know, in a foreign country. And at the time, this is the mid-60s, it was completely cut off from American culture. So there's no internet, there's no, there's no, Television. I remember reading the International Tribune, which was then a newspaper put out by the Washington Post and the New York Times that came out three times a week where I could read. There was no USA Today. There was certainly no television. So everything I consumed in terms of popular culture and literature was either the books that were lying around that were in English or what I could learn. And at that age, to be totally cut off, I don't think you could anymore because... You wood. couldn't, yeah, I agree. Because, the, because, you know, all you'd have to have, to have is a phone uh, or, a, or a, an iPad or, or just, I'm sure, that you know, other channels. But it, 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 I found it fascinating because I, it was very interesting to be a third grader in England, the only American that they'd ever met. But it was much more interesting to be the only 13-year-old. And one of the things that struck me is, again, the Italians had decided that they wanted to merge 
to, to try a democratic experiment, to try to educate all kids together, something that we take for granted in the United States, because we really begin democracy with schools. We, with some exceptions, if you have enough money in Portland, you send your kid to, you know, what is it, Kaplan Gable or mm-hmm. Oregon Episcopal School. But by and large, at least until recently, there were usually good enough schools that most people, I went to public schools. Certainly, certainly. not anymore, but yeah, yes, I think until th- recently. Things have changed. But, but it was one of those times when I think America was setting a, a, a positive goal, the idea of, of just as I said, democracy and justice being married. This was the cases of democracy and education, the idea that everybody should at least get an equal chance. And this was brought home to me in a way that was really distinctive because this was a new experiment in Italy so where I was, that most of the kids were working class, and their parents uh, worked at Fiat, this giant, and their parents were their fathers. This is generally pretty gender specific back mm-hmm. in the sixties. Would be operai in Italian. That means operator. It would mean worker, factory worker. And then maybe fifteen percent of the kids' fathers would be industriale, industrialists, or basically the managers. And these were very distinct classes. And I remember I had made a friend whose name was Enzo Anderlucci. And I remember some of the wealthier kids pulling me aside and saying, you can't be friends with Enzo. I said, why can't I be friends with Enzo? They said, your father is a professore, which in the Italian hierarchy was even higher than being an industrialist. They really revere education. So my father was a professore dottore. Big, big deal. So there was some kind of what? Informal caste system. Not informal. It was something that I learned in England. I'll never forget. My, we rented a house, uh, actually an estate from two little old ladies who went to Italy for the year. And my mother, I remember her talking about this for years, when we first came, there, there were servants that came with the house. And they wow. were referred to by their last name only, Brown. And, and my mother was just horrified by this, the idea of treating another person as if they were inherently worth less because of what class they were born into. Americans, and of course, this is a, a slice of history that maybe time has changed, but I like to think that it's something that is still good and great and can be about America. I do too. That we aspire at least to this democracy of at least possibility. Because even though if you can, your parents can afford really cool clothes and really cool vacations, and you know, obviously you're going to have a, a step up. If you can afford to go to Harvard or you're good enough to go to Harvard, it's going to make a difference than if you go to community college. But nonetheless, at least in America, we aspire. That conversation that those kids had with me, and they weren't being malicious in Italy. They were simply stating the class system that was still very, very prevalent and very heavy, as it was in England. Now, one can say that in America that we, uh, you know, but we at least aspire not to do that. And, And, you know, the idea is that you can come from almost any background and we in fact celebrate people whose parents or grandparents never went to college and it's what people run on now exactly first generation college graduate absolutely their 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 stories 
And they should be. I mean, they are. They should be. Yeah, that's the know, American dream. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Langston used the famous black poet, has a line that just brings me to tears. It goes, America must be, America will be America to me. And when they talk about, you know, marginalized people, that's what he was talking about. He was talking about the ability of people to... Um, all of the things being aside. And that doesn't mean that, of course, there hasn't been racism and sexism and ageism and uh, all kinds of casts and all of the mishmash and, and detritus of history that, because America is a country made up of people from elsewhere. A good friend of mine, uh, uh, Pamela Fitzsimmons, who, who right, writes, who writes for Portland Descent with Portland, Richard Sheverton, a guest on I the podcast. Recommended to everybody has, and I have to credit her with this. She says we are a nation of mutts, and it's really true. Uh, Americans are mixtures. There are very few purebreds, and frankly, they're kind of looked down their nose at, just as we look down our nose at overly bred. You know, dogs. Uh, people aren't dogs. I'm not making that analogy. I'm just saying that at least in America, we can aspire to, um, you know, this democratic. Yeah, nobody idea. would be- brag about being 100% British. No. I don't, not that no one I know. <laughs> well, and, 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 and at least as a kid, I know you wouldn't brag about you. As a kid, you would think, well, it's really cool that my family has, say, a second home, or it's really cool that we go to Europe every couple of years. But it really wasn't cool, at least when I was growing up, to talk about it. And we didn't have a second home, by the way, but I certainly traveled more. I had advantages. But I was taught, and I don't think my parents were that special, that as an American, you didn't brag about it. You didn't make a point of, of talking about that you were better, either because of your bloodline or even your accomplishments, which I think is something probably, but frankly, what have you, has anybody accomplished by the time they're 10 or 12? Not very much. They're basically, they're, they're yeah. taking the advantages. But let me get back to that, um, to, to that debate in 2009. So I... Uh, this was the New Yorker debate. No, this is actually, well, the New Yorker debate, the, the thing that was interesting about the New Yorker debate is, and it's available for free on YouTube, is it starts off with Jeffrey Tubin opening the book, The Death Penalty, which is a collection of six essays, one by me and two others of people in favor of the death penalty, and then three uh, by people opposed to the death penalty. And it, it pivoted off a live debate that was held in New York City just three months before 9-11, in person, and the, the plan had been that they were going to go directly to book, but obviously history intervened, 9-11 happened, and the book got delayed by about five years. Um, and um, and then, in, then the New Yorker did the festival in 2011, and um, apparently uh, uh, he had, Jeff had read the book, and he started off the debate by asking me about something I had written, which was about my decision in 1990 in Bend, Oregon, not to seek the death penalty against a man named Robert Joel Fort, who was currently applied for uh, parole. Robert Fort um, abducted, raped, and murdered a woman who happened to be white as she was cutting across the train tracks to get to her job in Bend in 1989. And I was assigned the case. I was the chief deputy DA. 
And one of the first decisions I had to make, and the DA, the elected DA, told me it was my decision, and, and he wanted me to make it, was whether to seek the death penalty. And um, in the book and in discussions about this, I have said, I don't call this a confession, that um, one of the main reasons I did not seek the death penalty was that I was aware that I was trying a black man for murdering a white woman in the whitest county in Oregon at the time. And whatever my motives might be, I was concerned that the history of the United States might be that some of the people on the jury, try as they might, might be influenced by uh, some of the less savory aspects of American history, which have been the way uh, some white people have treated many black people in America. And although I know that the statistics of, uh, in terms of black murders, for one thing, they tend most murders are not cross-racial. Most black people murder other black people. White people murder other white people. In fact, uh, black murders are underrepresented on death row by a significant number. For one reason, I'll say something very political. Well, they don't tend to be serial killers, that's exactly. for sure. They're wh those are white men. That's very good observation. And women yeah. don't tend to, with the exception of like Aileen Wuornos. Women, she was... Um, sexually diverse, which may or may not be interesting. I don't know, you know, what her hormone makeup exactly was, which might be, I don't know, you know, that could be interesting to, to look into something like that. If, if it is it testosterone driven and, and then why is it, why is it all white men? I don't know, but they seem to be compelled to become serial killers in a way that nobody else really is. Well, and you know, that's, a, that's, <laughs> that's an excellent catch. I have never had somebody, uh, you know, catch it the first time out like you just did, because if you look at, you know, why do we say these murders are worse than others? Most people, even if, whether, regardless of what someone's opinion is about the death penalty, we can agree that the, the rape of a, of a woman accompanied by her murder, the molestation of a child accompanied by her murder, um, the, you know, mass killings, you know, all of these are worse murders than, you know, somebody getting in a fight or that terrible 7-Eleven killing where the junkie panics and shoots. The, so why is it that there's a difference? I don't know why, but the fact of the matter is that statistically there are very few um, cases involving black murderers who sexually molest children and then go on to murder them. That characteristic is overwhelmingly held by white men. And as you say, if you're talking about gender, um, death row is about 95% oh, male. Now, you know, I, I think the only exception that I can think of, it, that is certainly, that generalization, as far as I know, is bizarrely broadly correct. And the only exceptions that I can think of are like Aileen Wuornos and then Wayne Williams. Right. Exactly. The Atlanta child murderer. Right. He is, and I've done some and research. And that's totally bizarre. It, it, well, and, you know, uh, Robert Blecker, who I think you know because he... he uh, I met him the day I met you, yes. Right. Uh, at the death penalty conference in 2002. 2002 21 years University ago. University of Oregon, yes. Yes, at the law school. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Robert was there because I had, you know... You recruited him, thank God. I pounded my fist metaphorically at the 
So we would have some balance on our panel. I I had just finished being president of the Oregon DA's Association, and I had just finished a term on the uh, uh, board of uh, visitors for the law school, and I was kind of appalled that they were going to hold a a death penalty conference with everybody on one side. And the (laughs) the director of the conference, who I think you worked for, called me I did, Charles Ogletree, Anita Hill's lawyer. And said, well, can you find anybody? And I said, sure, I can can probably find a couple people. And the the one person who who agreed, and I think did a wonderful job, was a professor named Robert Blecker from, from New York, who was just a remarkable guy. And, and, and he's the one with whom I traveled to Europe a few years after that to debate the death penalty in, at the European Parliament. But As far as I know, he's still at New York Law School, still is. teaching criminal and con law. And he does. He, he, for a while, as he puts it, uh, retired the death penalty to, to start dealing with sports betting. And by which I said, well, what do you mean by that, Robert? I said, did you, like, change your mind? He goes, no, I just thought it was less interesting. But then just about a year ago, there was a some national news event in which I saw Robert was doing his, you know, usual, beautiful, classical illusions, you know, uh, based in, in Greek law argument for why right. the death penalty should, in fact, exist in some cases. And then getting back to this, 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 I did a lot of these debates around the United States. Usually, these kinds of things it, it were happened at law schools or colleges because that is the nature of colleges and law schools. Whether it was the the Morse Conference in two thousand two, or the New Yorker in two thousand eleven, or whatever year this thing was at Berkeley, um, but. Um, the, the Berkeley conference came right after the execution of Tukey Williams. And one of the things that I said to the, so one of the things I, I did this a lot, I would, if, if the audience was large enough, in this case it was about somewhere between 800,000 people, I would say, okay, before we debate, can I get everybody to raise their hand who believes the death penalty is wrong and should not be used under any circumstances? And Well, and see, I would raise my hand to that, even though personally... If you asked me that that survey question, would you do you believe that a person who rapes and murders your three year old should be sentenced to death? Of course, I would say yes. And in fact, I'd probably do if it I'm, yourself. If you if you if you injected me with true serum, yes, I I would say I will I would hunt him down and I would risk my life and my freedom to do so. But I you know in law school. 2000 so I graduated 2002 I mean we were taught that the 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 death penalty is is never certain that you know all that Barry Sheck had been doing the innocence project for a long time and he was he was clearing these people we were taught that that these a lot of these defendants had terrible lawyers that were falling asleep that were drunk that were that a lot of these defendants were black and and, and intellectually deficient and not able to uh, speak for themselves in any kind of way that would allow them to to prove their innocence and not that they need to prove your innocence but i think the idea was look in the south they they all bets are against them so that's what i was at and i would i think i would still i still have a hard time with it because i don't know i don't i don't i've done enough jury trials to know juries don't always get it right juries don't always get it right but the problem is a lot of those suppositions which are conventional wisdom are just not true. So, for example, the idea of hundreds of people have been exonerated by DNA. 
actually the number of people on death row exonerated by DNA is nine. Nine. No zero in front of it, no two digits. None of them were about to be executed. Four of those people had already been removed off death row. And now, it's perfectly valid to say, hey, look, if it's even one, if there was even one person. I think that's what I'd say, yeah. But then you have to, in terms of punishment, say, okay, how air-free a justice system are you willing to tolerate? Let's not talk about death for a moment. Let's let's move from the hyper-emotional area of the death penalty. Let's talk about the next most serious crime, sexual assault, particularly of children. And let's not make it too personal. Let's not make it, you know, your children or children, you know, your nieces or nephews. But, you know, what should the penalty be for a 40-year-old man that grabs a an eight-year-old girl off the street and sexually offends her. I think some people would say that's worse than murder. They would, but 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 now we're talking. Unfortunately, that crime is much more common than murder in Oregon and in the United States. So we have to have a framework. We have to have a penalty structure for dealing with it. Now, currently in Oregon, that crime would be called rape in the first degree, and the penalty, in theory, would be a maximum of 20 years under Measure 11, the presumptive sentence is 100 months in prison, meaning they have to serve all 100 months, which is roughly eight years. And so, does, isn't it true that Oregon has the most sex offenders per capita? It may. I, the way that's defined get hard, I'm sure we have more than our share. So when I've gone out and debated about Measure 11, which is a whole other topic, uh, people say, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm very uncomfortable with, you know, these un- unfair long sentences. So I'll say, okay, and I'll give exactly um, that fact pattern, which is frankly not that outrageous. And I, briefly, middle, uh, though, for our listeners who don't know, what is Measure 11? It's <laughs> a good point. Uh, measure 11 was a ballot measure originally passed in 1994 um, that basically says if you do really serious crime, you're going to do really serious time. So what had been happening up to 1994 was people were sentenced to life for murder and served an average of eight years. I don't mean some of them served eight years. I mean the average sentence served for murder for life sentences was eight years. Now, most people would say that's ridiculous. When it came to rape, it was even worse. On paper, people were regularly sentenced to 20 years in prison. The average time served was probably less than two years. So we had a paper sense system. What? Why? Is Why? that Be- probation? Because, well, because what we panels? had was... This, no, it's, it was basically a system of the system, or a matter of the system trying to make itself look good. So in other words, legislature could look tough and say, we're going to pass a, a law that says, if you rape a child, you're going to do 25 years, boom. But then there's the reality of actually housing that person, feeding them, doing all the things you have to do to keep them in prison for 25 years. So what happened over a long period of time was, well, we'll give half time off if you behave yourself, and we'll cut another 20%. And that just infested the system. And one of the things, as someone who came up first as a reporter and then as a law student, was I saw that basically we, we, the, the, the government, prosecutors were lying to people. We would say, we're going to send this guy to prison for life for this murder. No, we weren't. We were going to send him for eight years. Now, it's a long time, but it's nothing like life. For rape, we said, it's going to be 20 years, and it would end up being two. 
for burglary, we'd say, oh, it's going to be 10 years, which is probably a ridiculously too long sentence, but they would end up doing two months. So there was so much to answer your question, what is Measure 11? Measure 11 said very simply, if you commit the most violent crimes, so rape in the first or second degree, that would mean either violent rape of a child or the rape, the violent rape of a, of a woman who says no, and, and not some not a date rape kind of situation, but one where there's no question about consent. Um, the higher degrees of homicide, so murder, manslaughter one, mans- not negligent homicide, which is your classic drunk gets behind the wheel, um, veers into oncoming traffic and kills somebody. That is not a Measure 11 crime. So Measure 11 crime started at roughly six years in prison. That's for sexual abuse, what most people would think of as molesting a child. That, that person would do six years real time. Then a rape would be eight and murder was 25. And it was controversial, when, but when it passed in 1994... I'm surprised it hasn't been overturned. Oh, parts of it I'll have. I'll, I'll get it, to Yeah, that. it's certainly been diluted. Well, the thing is, because it was voted on and made part of the Oregon Constitution, it requires a two-thirds vote of the Oregon legislature to overturn it. So 63% of Oregonians voted for Measure 11. And there, it... It wasn't even that hard. I was I was first elected to office that year. It was the first time I, I ran as district attorney. And the forces of the defense bar and the literati of Oregon didn't like it. And so seven years later, in 2000, uh, ballot measure 94 went on the ballot. And that was the all the arguments made of how unfair it was. It was rigid. It was too long. It was unfair. It was racist. At, you know, we could, yes. I could give all the uh, typical an, arguments. All the typical arguments for how unfair it was. And this time, the, the debate was much more robust. This time, Oregonians said no, except 74% of them said, no, we want to keep Measure 11. For that reason, because the people spoke with such clarity, the legislature has until very recently been terrified of touching it. Now, you're right. In 2019, uh, four years ago, um, in late in the session, late at night, uh, the Democratic majority managed to scrape up a few Republicans who were willing to sell their souls for a few hundred thousand dollars of what's called Christmas tree money, which is what the legislature gives away on the last day of the. And they gutted the juvenile portion of Measure 11. So now, when a 17-year-old, let's say, rapes and kills two little girls, he under virtually no circumstances can be tried as an adult. In fact, his trial or hearing will be held in secret. Um, His name will not be known. He will not be held under any circumstance beyond his 25th birthday. And at age 26, when he applies to be a police officer or a nurse and is asked, have you ever been convicted of a crime? He can honestly and truthfully answer no. So um, I don't think a lot of people know this. I think very, and they, the legislature knew this because, of course, the honest way to do this would have been to simply re-refer Measure 11. It was possible, like what happened in 1964 with the death penalty people's opinions about the death penalty had changed in 1964. Um, The death penalty was pretty overwhelmingly repealed in Oregon, just as 20 years later in 1984, 
Oregonians very strongly said, yes, they want it. The real question comes down to just as it does with a jury and, and or a jury writ large in terms of the voters is, do we trust the people of the state of Oregon to make these really big decisions? And one of the reasons that I believe we need Measure 11 and we need to get juvenile Measure 11 back, I suspect what's going to happen is there's going to be one after another of really hideous, violent juvenile crime where essentially nothing happens. And more importantly, no one knows about it. It'll be done in secret. The the newspapers either won't be able to or will refuse to report about it. So, for example... The next parole hearing I'm going to next month um, is a man, well, his name used to be Patrick Arnott. He was 16 years old when he uh, lured his seven-year-old neighbor, Ashley Carlson, uh, into his basement. He tried to have sex with her. She resisted, so he strangled her to death in the basement of his parents' home, three blocks from my office in downtown Astoria. She, uh, Ashley was missing, and I'm... You know, when a little girl's missing in a small town, everybody freaks out. It wasn't just the cops. We had the National Guard. We had the FBI. Interestingly, Patrick Hart joined the police in looking for this lost little girl. It just took us about a day to figure out where she was. She was he buried her and then had a cigarette in the basement of his parents' house. So he's 16 years old at the time of the murder. He's not eligible for the death penalty under Oregon law, and I don't disagree with that. But... Because of Measure 11 was in existence in 1999 and 2000, he was tried as an adult, and I was the main prosecutor. His lawyers chose not to have a jury. It's the, Oregon is unlike most other states. In most states, both the, the prosecution and the defense have to agree to waive jury. In Oregon, it's solely the defendant's choice. If the defendant wants a jury, they get a jury. If they don't want a jury, but you can never deny a defendant a jury. That's a fundamental it's right. It's a constitutional right. Yeah. And it should be. It mm-hmm. should be. It's, it's the community judging, you know, its peers. So in this case, for good tactical reasons, which is mainly the horror of the crime, um, his lawyers wanted to make a much more legalistic argument. So they chose to try the case to a judge. And they used all the defenses you might think of, that he had been abused himself, which he had been, that his brain had been damaged, that something called positronic emission tomography, which I learned about, called PET scans, which are like a jumped-up version of a, of a CAT scan and show cool and hotter parts of the brain. And, what, and of course, they had you know, thousand dollars $50,000 of expert witnesses. I had the Internet. So what I could do is literally go home at night, look this up, and then call around the United States and try to find a nice doctor at some med school who would explain to me why this was BS, what they were saying. And I found one at the University of of South Carolina who said, well, we can't use PET scans for that. That's crazy. He said that would be like trying to read someone's, you know, personality, you know, through, you know, via their temperature or where their heart is located in their body. He said, you know, we can tell that there might be a cooler or 
hotter part of the brain, but we are years, decades, maybe centuries away from knowing what that means. So this is the kind of thing I'm sure you experience in this year kind of law where voodoo science comes in. Because you can find an expert who'll say, oh, I've looked at this positronic emission tomography scan and you can see this blue area here. This is clearly where the soul resides and see how this one's darker? That's complete hooey. Nobody can say that. The problem is, and this is <laughs> what people don't know, the assumption is that, because this is what movies are, is in movies, the prosecutor, you know, is wearing, you know, $2,000 suits and they have two or three assistants and, you know, they have everything. And the defense lawyer, he's, you know, wearing a tattered suit and comes into court and he might have a, you know, a mysterious young assistant, you know, a good looking young woman or man or something who has a dark secret. I mean, this is the. This, this <laughs> that's is the, a John Grisham novel. That's, a, that's exactly what it is. It's several John Grisham novels. And Julia it, Roberts was that young assistant. Exactly. There's, there's, met, this is a, a, a trope of many, many movies. Unfortunately, the reality is the exact opposite. And maybe it's the way it should be. When I was a district attorney uh, of Clatsop County, which is for 25 years, I had a line item in my roughly three, four million dollar budget of about 30,000 a year. That was for all expert witnesses in all two to 3,000 cases I tried. So when I tried an um, aggravated murder case, there's no way I could afford a $10,000 witness. So in this particular case, Patrick Arnold, they're spending forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 of the taxpayer's money on a single witness. And I literally have to pull it off the internet. So what I do is I just talk to a nice doctor and he basically explains, this is how you poke holes and, and these are the questions to ask. So we go through this trial. My recollection is it took a month, a month and a half. And the judge first makes the decision that, yes, he's guilty of aggravated murder and then has to make a much harder decision. Because Patrick Harnett is under the age of 18, death is not possible, and I don't disagree with that. He's 18 at this point, but he wasn't when he committed the murder. And the two options available to Judge Nelson are life uh, with parole possible after 30 years or life with no possibility of parole. And uh, we have a whole second phase of the trial about that. Judge Nelson, I just read the transcript, actually, a couple days ago. It's been over 20 years. The trial was in 2000. And Judge Nelson came back and spoke for about 10 minutes and said, it's one of the hardest decisions I've ever made. The easiest decision would be to say, of course, in 20 or 30 years, he'll probably be better. But all the indications are he won't. He's broken. Some of it is not his fault. Some of it is his fault. But he's going to be a danger forever. And I have to then make this sentence. I'm sentencing you to life without the possibility of parole. Not an easy decision to make. And Patrick Harned has been in prison since 2000 until 2020 when the Department of Corrections chose for reasons that I'm not at all clear on because they don't tell me to move him from one of the big prisons in Salem to the Snake River Prison, which is in the mountain time zone. Yeah, I've been there. I know where that is. And all of a sudden, Patrick Harned vanished. There was no Patrick Harned in prison anymore because the Department of Corrections had given him permission to change his name something that I didn't think they allowed him to do. 
so uh, it's it's very easy to change your name in Oregon. You basically file a mm-hmm. petition, you post it whatever, whatever county, unless somebody objects, which almost never happens, the judge signs off on it. So Patrick Arden no longer exists. Um, his name is now something like uh, John Reyna, I believe. I think it's R-A-Y-N-A. It's a made-up name as far as I'm concerned and in my correspondence. So what happens in December of 2020, just before Kate Brown leaves office? I'm sorry, 20. 22, when Kate Brown leaves office, just a few months ago. She grants a secret commutation to Patrick Carnett, commuting his sentence from life without parole to life with parole. No consultation with the mother of Ashley Carlson, who is very much alive and, and desperately mourns the death of her seven-year-old daughter. No consultation with the DA's office. No consultation with me, the prosecutor. Governor just goes ahead and does it. Gets worse. Then I'm informed uh, a few weeks ago that his hearing will be next month, um, his parole hearing. And the governor has decreed, both the former and current governor, that they don't think life is appropriate. They don't even think 30 years, which the law says is appropriate. They think that juveniles who commit murder should only serve 15. So I this will all be done by Zoom or some version of Zoom, Microsoft Teams, I think. And I will appear before the parole board, as will the mother of the dead girl and the current district attorney of Clatsop County. And we will try to explain to the five members of the parole board appointed by Kate Brown why Patrick Harned, now known as Jesse Reyna or whatever he calls himself, should never be allowed to walk free. One of the reasons, of course, he changed his name is by Oregon law, he has to go back and spend a minimum of six months in his original county of residence slash county of conviction. That means he'll be coming back to Clatsop County. And frankly, after 25 years of being the district attorney in Clatsop County, some of these things, you know, I, I deal with them all the time. And I so some of the sting, I think sometimes I forget about it because I was talking to some neighbors about this case. And I'd forgotten how much the murder of a little girl really means to a community. And when they find out that this now 40-year-old man is going to be released into their community. That's very young. And they won't even know his true name. And he's going to be able to legally say, oh, my name is XYZ. Now, he'll still have to say he was convicted of a crime if if asked. But we talk about a wolf um, in the community. I don't know what he's done in prison. I hope they've made him all better. But I think Judge Nelson was probably right. 23 years ago when he said some things are not fixable. He's, he's changed his name to Jesse Davin Payne Reyna. Thank you. P- J- J-E-S-S-I-E Davin D-A-V-I-N P-A-Y-N-E hyphen R-A-N-A. Well, I mean, that is, it's a, at least it's a distinct name. <laughs> he should have picked John Smith. Well. If he had a brain cell. I, I, I don't know what will happen. I um, I the, the very first um, of the juveniles, and I want to say juveniles, these are people who were at the time that they committed murder, 
under 18. There is a, a case called the, the Redmond Five, and that case um, has been followed closely by KOIN TV and Dan Tilkin, who's done some excellent work. And I, uh, I don't know when you're going to broadcast this, but I think people should be paying attention to what Dan's going to report because I believe we're going to see a decision very quickly on that. And the word I've heard uh, from sources within the governor's office is that there's tremendous pressure to move these people out, meaning to release them. And and these, I can't overstress this enough. This isn't just a young person who makes a mistake and, you know, throws eggs at a car or somebody who, you know, steals, you know, a, a bunch of candy or someone even who... Uh, you know, stole a car or broke into a business. We're talking about things that alter not just one person's life, but an entire community, devastating people unto generations. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, we should seek revenge for that, but the punishment should be apportionate. And if I can for a moment go back to that in 2009, I'm in Berkeley and I'm saying, Okay, how many of you are against the death penalty? That's how we started this. And you, and like you, 90% of them said, no, we're against it. I said, okay. I just wanted to, I just, and, I'm, and I didn't try to argue with them. I just said, I just want to establish that most, you know, I'm, I'm basically preaching in a room where most of you don't agree with me on the get-go. And then I said, how many of you can tell me the names of any of Tukey Williams' victims. Dead silence for about a minute or two. I said, I said, yeah, see, you all know who Tukey Williams is, but not one of you can give me a single name of the five people he murdered. So I made my point, debated with this Stanford law professor for an hour, and then students, it's a, it's a, I think it was a law school event, might have been just an a undergraduate event, any event. You know, there's the microphone, just like there was at the Moore Center, and people come up. And a young student, looks to be me, maybe probably a sophomore at most, young woman in Berkeley, comes up. And I, I feel a little bit sorry for her, because as you know, as a trial lawyer, most people, one of the most terrifying things to them is to get up in public and speak. For us trial lawyers, it's no big deal. We enjoy it. Um, I, yeah, that's I, our drug. Right. And, and you know, it's, it's not only something we don't fear, it's something we relish. But... Most people, you know, it's not, not something that they... So I have a natural sort of just human, you know, kindness just to say, okay, look, this is hard. So she gets up to the mic. It's all like there's a thousand people in the room. And, and she says, well, Mr. Markey, you, you know, you, 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 you asked us about the, the, the names of the victims. Can you tell us, do you know the names of any of Stanley Williams' children? And I said, yes, I do. That would be Stanley Williams Jr., and he's doing life in Folsom Prison for murder. Wow. <laughs> now, usually you're a trial lawyer. You know this. You don't get handed setups like that Almost every day. never. That's why they always say don't ever ask a question that you don't know the answer to. Yeah, I love that one because <laughs> that's yeah, That's true. a great trial tip, but it's also true in life when you want to make a point. But the other thing that I love about that is that that is really true, except I can think of two or three times in the maybe 300 trials that I've had where I had no idea at all 
what the answer was well, going to be. Well, sometimes it doesn't it was matter. Golden. Oh, but, really? Oh, yeah. I'll oh, do. you took a risk. I you took put an it all risk. on black. Yeah, I'll tell you. There are two occasions, and one of them was a death penalty trial involving Randy Guzik. Okay. So this is the this is the third trial of four. 1997, Bend, Oregon. Third death penalty trial that you did of four. Randy Guzik. Okay. I'm, a, I'm acting as a special prosecutor. I'm the DA in Astoria, but I'm going back because I promised the family I would do it until we got it right. So I'm doing the third trial, and the defense is called an attractive young woman who's testifying basically that she's sort of a second cousin to Randy Guzik, the killer, and he really helped her through some hard times. It's basically what we call mitigation evidence, and it's very common in death penalty cases. The defense will call a large number of people to try to humanize the murderer and say, well, he's not just this horrible monster. He helped me stack wood. He helped me when I was sad. He helped me learn math, whatever. And Randy Guzik, interestingly, is probably have as a genius IQ. He won a bunch of scholarships when he was in high school. He was one of the most popular guys in, in Redmond High. I mean, this guy was in the upper few percentiles in almost every way. He's also a total sociopath. So this young woman is basically, as you know, and maybe some of your listeners do, and trials are not generally surprises. Both sides have to have reports. They have to exchange them. So I have a report. There's there su- surprises in Oregon State Civil Court. It's oh. trial by ambush. Okay, I didn't know that because yes. I didn't try civil law. It is. So it is in federal court, it is more like a play, just like you described, and in where it's all scripted out ahead of time. In civil court, it's all trial by ambush, and you don't know the other side's experts unless they filed an affidavit, which they almost never do, and they can do un- unnamed affidavits. Like I have an unnamed expert who will say... And oh. you can say as an as a as a officer of the court, I have an unnamed expert who will say X Y Z, and you sign it, and under penalty of perjury, is the lawyer saying, wow. "I swear to you that I've got this person waiting in the wings," and you can win a summary judgment motion based on things like that. Well, that's very different than criminal yes, law. Yes, it is, but, but that's how it should be. Criminal law should be much more. So in theory, but you don't have to give much. So in, in this case, for example, the, and the defense's obligation is much less. So what I have is... Which have is a, probably how it should be, since yeah, they don't have a burden of proof. Right, exactly. And I, you know, we're seeking to kill this guy, so our burden should be higher. So the report, right. the, the report says essentially all these things. But I just get, you're a trial lawyer, I have this spidey sense. Something just doesn't feel right to me. And for your non-lawyer listeners... Um, in cross-examination, you're allowed to lead witnesses. Direct examination, you're not. So I just had a weird feeling. Now, normally, the right thing to do would be just let this young woman testify, do what little damage she could to my case, and move on. In this case, I decided I wasn't going to do that. So I say, whatever her name was, um, but um, things aren't the same as when you gave this report. I had no basis for saying this, just instinct. And she says, yes, Mr. Marquis, and I'm tired of being lied to. And, of course, everybody's on the edge of her seat now because it's we know. It's a Mason we moment. We exactly. We don't know if she's talking about me or the defense attorney or anybody. And I just have this sense that let's let this go. By the way, Perry Mason 
was written at a time when there was trial by ambush, and criminal trials were uh, cases of basically complete surprise. But in Oregon and federal criminal courts, totally different. In fact, if either side commits a serious discovery violation... Right, you get in big trouble. I mean, you can get your whole case dismissed. Absolutely. So in this case, so everybody's right there, and I say, well, what do you mean by that? Again, as you know, as a trial lawyer, you don't ask questions you don't know the answer to. And she unless goes, you have a spidey sense. Unless you have, I mean, this one was really <laughs> drilling into me. I don't know why. And it was, you know, not, it was just the feeling. And she it goes, because I've been lied and betrayed to it. Now, we are, both of us, both my team and the defense team are just on the edge of her table. Uh, you know, everybody wants, by whom? By Randy Guzik, the defense attorney comes off the, you know, he's, objection, objection, non-responsive. <laughs> it's his witness. What's he talking about? Judge goes, it is your witness. <laughs> and uh, so I said, well, what did you mean by that? And she goes, well, you know, since I, I gave this statement, I was thinking, you know, I was uh, making supper for my partner and our child, and I thought, what if someone came and came into our house and, and killed, you know, somebody I loved like Randy did? It was it was a moment. Wow. It was a moment that almost turned the trial. Now the other one was even better, and it was a trial that actually got a lot more national attention. In 1997, a, a nice young man named David Wall, whose parents live um, in the Portland area, uh, was dating a woman named Linda Stangel. And they were living on the property here in the in the greater Portland area, and they decided. Uh, they would take a trip to the coast one November in 1997. So they drove over, they went to the Tillamook uh, Cheese Factory, and ultimately they ended up uh, um, in Cannon Beach at a place called the Cola State Park, which is quite beautiful, beautiful view of the ocean. It's November. And that itinerary that you just gave is a very typical Portland, sure. especially couples itinerary or yeah. families. And they're like, they're good-looking young kids, 25 years old, you know. They can stay up all night, you know. So it's just a, you know. So Linda comes back, but no David. And they're they're living on a basically a family compound with a couple houses, and, and the Joneses go, where's David? She goes, I lost him. They say, what do you mean you lost him? Well, it becomes clear that something happened, and she eventually basically claims that he wandered off when they were on the coast, and she just got irritated and drove back the 100 miles back in November at night in the rain. So the Coast Guard gets called out. Pouring rain, freezing cold. Yeah, Yeah, real nasty weather. He doesn't even have a jacket. So alarm bells go off, Coast Guard helicopters in the air, you know, sheriff's office, everybody looks in the ocean. If you've ever seen what the ocean looks like, even on a good day, it's pretty scary. And nothing is found. David is David is lost. And nothing happens. Linda Stengel moves back to Minnesota. And frankly, the ball was dropped by law enforcement. They said, well, he must have wandered off or something happened to him. We don't know. Months go by, and the mother of the, of the victim, David... Uh, uh, David Wall's mother, Bev Jones, um, runs into a woman whose husband is a state police homicide detective. And she says, it's still bothering me. Can't you do something about it? That detective is, knows me, comes to me and says, can't we put together a task force? So we do. And we trick Linda Stengel. We, by some coincidence that some people would say was divine intervention, right about that time in Grays Harbor, 
Washington on the beach, a detective finds a piece of human bone attached to three fingers and an elbow. That's it. Just enough to take the fingerprints of. No face, no body, just, you know. And the fingerprints are David Wall's. But they don't really know who David Wall is because hasn't really been entered as a homicide. Well, we find out that there's this body. We find out it's him. We know that Linda was with him on the ocean. So we decide to lure her out to Oregon uh, by telling the Jones family, we want you to invite Linda to the memorial service. They don't really want her at the memorial service, but we'll pay the ticket. So we launder the ticket through an, an agency. We trick her. I remember being interviewed for Dateline, and the Dateline interview goes, you tricked her, didn't you? I said, yes, we did, because there's no law that says we don't. I mean, this is not Queensbury, you know, mm-hmm. rules. <laughs> so Linda comes back, and two state police detectives um, – one of whom just retired recently as the superintendent of the state police, who was closer to Linda's age, they basically say, hey, Linda, would you like retrace the steps? This goes on for like six, eight hours. <laughs> I'm at a conference in Bend, sitting next to Gil Garcetti, the former district attorney of L.A. County, who's going to be the speaker at the DA's association, and I want to know why he agreed to move the O.J. Simpson case from Santa Monica, where it should have been held by the rules, to downtown. Because I used to live in L.A., and I was a reporter in Los Angeles, and I even worked for the California Attorney General. And, of course, it's a question a lot of people wanted to ask, but everybody was afraid. Too afraid for PC reasons. Of course, because... The jury makeup is going to be so radically different. And the the pressure was put on Garcetti, who was a good prosecutor. And I'm I'm at the head table, um, and because I'm on the executive committee or something, and I'm really... This is a question I've just been dying to ask, and I don't mind asking it. And at that very moment, someone says... You got a phone call. No, you really have to answer this phone. And it's the detectives. And they said, good news. She confessed. I said, really? Did you Mirandize her? Meaning, did you give her her Miranda rights? Well, almost. I said, what do you mean almost? Well, she wasn't in custody. I said, well, but you please tell me you gave her your Miranda rights, which is everybody's heard them. You have a right to remain silent. If you, you know, if, if, if you do not wish to speak, you know, an attorney will be appointed. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be appointed for you. It's on a card. Every police officer has it. So I said, well, where is she now? She's in a hotel in Portland. And I said, well, go back and give her her Miranda rights and call me back. So I go back to my hotel room, and I wait three hours. They call me back and say, good news. She confessed again on tape. Same thing. She t- said that David gave her a fake push, she pushed back, and then he gave an irritating scream as he fell 300 feet into his death on the Pacific Ocean. But now I didn't want to arrest her because I, I wanted her to go back to Minnesota and then I would take it to a grand jury, which we did. So a warrant goes out for arrest. We're finally at trial. It's being covered live by court TV. Linda Stengel is on the witness stand, and you as a trial lawyer will appreciate this, is that she's an attractive 25-year-old young woman, and her claim now is that the police... Everybody likes attractive people, no matter who they are. The defendants, the witnesses, the... Yeah. Right. And, you know, she she doesn't look like a bad person. Right, she doesn't look like a murderer. She doesn't look like a murderer, and and when she probably I, didn't look like Aileen Warnos. No, she didn't look anything like Aileen Warnos. <laughs> she looked a lot closer to the actress who played right. Aileen Warnos before she. Which she's all makeup. made up. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, and I'm on 
day two of cross-examination, and I know I'm not looking good to the jury. I'm this mean, middle-aged man who's, you know, back and forth. And just, and her claim is that basically she never confessed, that the police may forced her into a coerced false confession. And she has, of course, an expert witness, a professor, uh, Richard Offshe, who's really famous from Berkeley, who's going to come and came and testified. The police do this all the time. They coerce false confessions out of people. And I cross-examined him. I thought it was ridiculous. But he testifies that it's a false confession. Then she gets on the stand and says, it, it, you know, I never did this. They made me say this. I would have done anything to basically just get rid of them. I was terrified by it, which a lot of people could see. And at that moment, I had, like, you've done this. You probably have written questions. You have an idea of how long you're going to cross-examine. And I had about another hour or two of questions to ask her. But I wasn't getting anywhere, and I was just irritating the jury, and I could see that. So I'm saying, so what, so you, this is a fairly complicated story, Miss Stangle. How did you come up with such an elaborate story to, that you claim is false to tell the police? And she said, because that's the way it happened. Stop. And I just didn't say anything. And the longest 20 seconds in the world went by. And I looked at her. She looked at me. I looked at the jury. And and it sunk in what she no just said. No further questions. Exactly. That's exactly right. That's when you sit down. <laughs> exactly when I sat down because I had then gotten something that I have never in my 40 years of practicing law had, whether it was accidental or on purpose, which was have a defendant confess to a crime, in this case a homicide, on the stand. Now, about 45 seconds later, which is an eternity on the witness stand, she realized what she did and said, oh, because that's what they wanted me to say. But It didn't of, matter by I, then. I, I don't the think bell had been rung. No, the bell had been rung. The jury convicted her of manslaughter, and she uh, ended up spending six years in prison where she became girlfriend with another woman I had convicted three years earlier of killing her husband in Bend, Oregon. <laughs> Small You state. can't make that up. No, you can't. So, but she, she was not a death penalty case. Oh, no, no. In fact, I never charged her with murder. I didn't believe it was premeditated. I think she just got really angry at her boyfriend, and they were at the top of a 300-foot cliff. And she, as she said, she said, screw you, and pushed him off a 300-foot cliff. And as, he, as she said to the jury, he made an annoying scream. I'm sorry, she said that to the police, and we replayed that on a tape. So, no, she never, she was never facing... Which sounds scarily and bizarrely believable. Well, the irony, I think, is if she just told the truth, I don't know if she would have been convicted at all. She just said, hey, it was a terrible accident. And it was an accident. Yeah. But she lied. And, and, and yet yeah, juries don't tend to forgive liars easily. Right, and she could have come up with almost anything. And, you know... You know, the one thing that, um, that I have been struck by in my career is the incredible grace of, of victims, of most of whom, you know, it's very hard to describe what it, and I don't know, you know, we, we tend to say as lawyers, I know what you're going through or, you know, something like that. And I've forced myself never to say that to someone unless it is literally an experience I have had. Most of us, thank goodness, have not had a loved one murdered 
have not had a loved one raped. And so we in law enforcement have to be really careful not to say dumb things to victims. That's like, right. I, I know what you're going through. You don't want to make things worse. Well, I don't have any idea what it's like because I realize as I've become developed these friendships with these families now going back 35, 40 years, many of whom I maintain these friendships long after the trials, is that it never goes away for them. I mean, it, it's like any pain, all of us, uh, the loss of a loved one, a grandparent, a parent, uh, or someone else maybe who's taken too soon, you know, time will reduce it. But it, and, and it's one of the things that as these, what we're about to see in Oregon is uh, what's called a pig in the python. Uh, that was originally a term used to describe um, the the baby boom that came with post-war Europe. So the GIs after World War II came back, got married, had kids, and as a result, there's this huge generation you are not part of, I am. That's my parents' uh, generation, right, yeah. 1948 to 1960, who are baby boomers, and they're large, and, and um, from a statistic standpoint, that's a large group of people sort of passing through, and then other generations, X, Y, millennials. Well, in the criminal justice system, we're about to see the results of that. Because what happened in Oregon, because of Measure 11, which you talked about earlier, is that sentences weren't really real until the mid-90s. So people were doing six or seven years for murder. They were doing maybe one year for rape. That's changed. And now, in 2023, we are going to start having more and more and more parole hearings, which have been ginned up in advance, I'm afraid, to basically just start spitting these people out. A parole hearing is nothing like a trial. What changed? Um, the politics. Well, for one thing, Oregon was based on the idea of populist democracy. Uh, a man who very few people have heard of named William Uren, not his name was spelled U apostrophe R-E-N. He was a state representative from Clackamas County in 1898 for one term. But more importantly, he invented direct democracy. He invented the idea of the people voting on really important stuff like the death penalty, sentencing, all kinds of things, the direct election of U.S. senators. And Oregon, between about 1900 and 1940, was a real pioneer in the United States in this idea of marrying, if you will, populism and democracy, the idea that people made the decisions, not some appointed or even elected elite. Well, I and that's why we love ballot measures. That's why we love ballot measures. I don't like all the results of ballot measures, but you know what? I don't get my way all the time, and nobody does. But I think what we have now seen and what we have seen for four or five years is a, is a distinct political class who are really not tied in with the general population, they, they basically get jobs right out of, I mean, Tina Kotex is a great example. What, what, you know, what, what, what is her career? Community organizer, Democratic Party apparatchik, um, state representative. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not demeaning it in any way, but I'm saying she didn't go out and dig ditches or be a lawyer or a doctor or a nurse or a 
garbage, you know, truck driver or a lumberman or a fisher or whatever it is. And I'm not saying you should have that, but I think what we're losing is we're having, we are now being managed by a political governing class that is in many ways very divorced from the values and the beliefs of most Oregonians. Now, that doesn't mean you put every single thing up for, uh, for popular initiative, it would be very, very unwieldy. But clearly there are some very big issues that you do. Um, and, and we've always prided ourselves in that in Oregon. And I think we're gonna come to a collision. I mean, this election, this last election, I supported Betsy Johnson, an independent, the only independent, serious independent candidate for governor in 100 years. The last time, it was a man named Julius Meyer, who was the grandson of the founder of Meyer and Frank, and people were fed up with the Democrats and the Republicans, and they elected him. Meyer and Frank was a department store in Oregon. It, it had There was a beautiful building in Portland that I think is now the Vestas building. Is that right? In yes. The Pearl District. And that's some old Meyer and Frank building is what we call it. And it was uh, it was like a Macy's. But it, it was bought by Macy's, you know, my generation. Which was the perfect brand to purchase it, frankly, yeah. because it was very, if you went to the East Coast, you go, oh, this is like a Meyer and Frank. Right. And it was iconic for, you know, when I was growing up in Oregon. You know? Me too, even in the 80s and early right. 90s. Yeah. And, you know, Portland's changed. and But, you know, I... I love Portland. I've never lived here. I've lived full-time in Eugene. I grew up in Eugene. I practiced law in Eugene. I've lived in Newport. I've lived in Bend, and I've lived last Why not years. Portland? Just the right job didn't come up, and I liked other parts of Oregon. It was not really intentional. I mean, most people either follow their heart or they follow their job, and my jobs have been elsewhere. I mean, I've so Portland is the center of you know Oregon. And I, I love Portland. I've been coming here since the 70s to shop and go to dinner and walk the streets. And I'm terrified because what I see, there's an old analogy that if you, or claim that if you put a frog in a pot of water and you turn the heat up slowly, that the frog won't even realize it until you've essentially boiled the frog alive. And I really believe that's what's happening to Portland. And it struck me today. Well, I, had I don't lunch, disagree. I had lunch with a friend at, at Jake's. And I was looking right, out the window. It's a famous fish house downtown. Yeah, the, the original Jake's. Jake's original crawfish, a really classic uh, place in, in Portland. And right up against the window was this floridly psychotic man wearing... I, you know, with a drill in his hand, walking out into traffic. He's probably not hurting anybody but himself. But I go by, and my point is that if you went just back to 2012 and took pictures of what most of now, this building that we're in right now, which is a great, beautiful This is the building, medical arts building, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And when I park my car to get here, there are people smoking. Oh, they're smoking stuff. fentanyl in every single alcove. Right. Because it's, there are so many vacancies in the building. Right. Particularly on the ground floor, because nobody wants to be on the ground floor anymore downtown. Right. And, and I, I really don't think, I certainly don't think the people in Salem get this. 
and and it, and for people, I think you know the, a, a lot of this gets distilled into. And one of the reasons I found you know your opinions interesting because you're bucking this trend of well, you have to be you know right or left. You know those are not the only choices. And in Oregon, the idea is if this bothers you, which I hope it does, because you know Oregon can be a diverse state, it can be a vibrant state, it can be a different state, it can be quirky, it can be welcoming to people. But it doesn't mean that you have thousands and thousands of homeless drug addicts and people attacking and stealing and damaging. And that's in Portland, as an outsider who nonetheless comes to Portland frequently, I see it approaching a tipping point. And, and I am far beyond the point of being capable, both in terms of my life and my position, to, to make a difference on that. I don't think any one person can. But if the governing class of Oregon does not do something, it's, it will not continue. You know, we have plenty of examples of rotting cities in the Midwest. Uh, cities yeah, Detroit, like Detroit, Cleveland, St. Louis. Exactly. Where, and, and there are you know, other things that sometimes will come in. Or what happens is you end up with a governing class and basically sort of an underclass. I don't want to live in that kind of society. And um, I don't think most Oregonians do. But, you know, it will only change when people elect different people to the Portland City Council. I hope there is a different candidate for Multnomah County District Attorney next year. Um, I hope there is a different candidate for Attorney General. Well, when I told listeners you were coming on, they want to know why you're not running for DA. <laughs> well, I'm I, not joking. Well, that's that's very flattering, but I'm A, too old, and B, I've never lived in Portland. I don't think they care. I think they'd be <laughs> happy to vote for you because you have the ability to run. You have the experience and the ability to run the office, which I think a lot of people that they'd be happy to support don't have, even if they're younger. Um, and but although it sounds like you're just kind of ready to be done with that, no, I you know if I thought there was any real chance of doing it, I probably would. But I do understand. You don't think there's a chance? No, because for one thing, I, I'll tell you one thing: when you get older, you realize that not to be melodramatic about the Bible, but to everything there really is a season. And there's a reason I think why people have. I remember how much energy I had when I was 40 years old, and how much energy I had when I was 30 years old. There are a lot of good people out there. There are good people in Portland. There were there are good people in the U.S. Attorney's Office. There are good people in the DA's office. They need to be enabled. They need to be brought forward. And there needs to be people in Portland with money and with the willingness to step forward. There and are say, fewer and fewer of those is the problem. Like Anthony Effinger just wrote this fabulous article in Willamette Week called They Left. It was the cover story. And I read it. Yeah, it was great. It was filled with data, and we are losing people for the last three years in Multnomah County, which is where Portland is situated. That's the first time we've lost population since 1987, and apparently that was just a blip. Um, and, you know, the 80s is when we were late 80s, pretty gritty. I mean, we were like a mini kind of Times Square in New York City. Well, a lot of things were, I mean, when you look back, one of the things that happened is the fishing industry had really contracted, the logging industry, which those two industries... We were economically depressed, that's right. right. And and it had taken almost a century to get to that point. And then Oregon sort of rewrote itself, you know, uh, Intel came in, Portland changed. I mean, it's it's not a question of being gentrified. So can we do it again? 
I think so, but it, but but not with some of the people in the governing class, in the state capital, in the attorney general's office, in the DA's office, and the city council. If what we're going to have is a bunch of, of self-appointed woke committees lecturing people and, and basically having sort of witch trials where people confess their their birth heir of of not you know uh, having surrendered whatever privilege they were born with or they acquired um and and that that is the center of things then there's going to be not a lot of reasons for other people with real money to invest here or even those people who did invest uh, like i i my family um, literally came over on the boat with the family of Gert Boyle, who founded Columbia Sportswear. I don't know. I know that they've already. That's amazing. Have, you know, they've already started moving back. Yeah, they have. And I think that the absolute, to me, the canary in the coal mine is Nordstrom's, interestingly. Nordstrom's owns the building that it's in, it doesn't just rent it. If you look at the central downtown area, it's really one of the few big stores left or big anchors. Yeah, there's the Nike store, which is surrounded by all kinds of fences. There's all the boards. There's the windows. Apple store, which looks like Bosnia. Right. It, it, and, but in my mind, it's just... It, it's Nordstrom just the, is not... It was boarded up for a while during the riots, and then they were able somehow to take the plywood and, and the fencing and everything down and... and exist without that i don't know how they've been able to do well, it i'll tell but you one way they were off. able to do well, it well they've got security they have armed yes security. yes i mean that's real but not at all times of i mean somebody no. could show up at 3 a.m and of course but no they're well i mean they're, they're taking a chance or running a business you know the the appeal but somehow to go, they've done it well part of it has been by saying we're going to push back and it, it's armed security is very expensive because when, it you, is. when you start saying I'm going to give somebody a gun and let them there, as you know, their liability is enormous. Yes, their and, insurance is going to be through the roof. And you know, we and of course, in a better world, the Portland Police Bureau would be doing that. But one of the things we aren't talking about—we just don't have the bodies well, to the, do the, that. Well, there, there, I believe, are about a thousand billets using military parlance in the Portland Bureau, meaning there are roughly a thousand sworn positions that are budgeted. I believe I, Yeah, are, but I, we have less than that. We have, it's you have 800. This, yeah, are, yeah, that's about right. And on top of that, it's very um, gold-heavy, meaning that there's, there's a lot of people in the upper ranks, lieutenant, captain, uh, division commander. For example, there's no traffic division in Portland, none. I'm sorry, there is, there's one sergeant. It's a very distinctive patch. It's a green patch. It says Portland uh, Police Bureau, and then there's a green cross. That's their, their, they don't, if you notice, there are no traffic stops. That's because the police bureau doesn't make traffic stops. They might, if something, if they were chasing a stolen car, maybe. So when you start cutting back and saying, well, we're not going to... Uh, they have a plane. Laws. They actually don't chase. I don't think they do chase. No. I don't think they're allowed to chase. My understanding is they have to leave it to the plane. Well, eventually, I guess, if uh, if you could get a plane up fast enough... They, ha- they have it. So it's... When I went on a nighttime ride-along, it's, it's in there. And you can see it and you can hear it. It's up there. And then what will happen is they'll see or, you know, somebody that they otherwise, in any, any a functioning city, yeah. would chase. They'll just radio to the plane and the plane will go find them. 
The problem with that, though, from a law enforcement standpoint, is the plane can spot them, but if the issue is, is that the, is that the car that, say, fired the shot, or is that the car that ran over, unless you can identify the person, you can't simply say, that's the same car. Yes, I mean, there's billions <laughs> of problems with it, but, you know, this is what they're relegated to doing. Well, but the, there, there are some easier answers. I mean, it, it takes tremendous political will, clearly, which Ted Wheeler doesn't have, and that would be to say, okay, we're actually going to put boots on the ground. We're going to put police officers, at least in pairs, for their safety, and we're going to put them in the downtown core, and we're going to start rousting people. Because guess what? One of the things that, one of the claims is, oh, there's a case out of the Ninth Circuit um, that says you can't make it criminal for people to camp on the streets. Yeah, Boise. Boise versus McDonald. That's true. Except they don't bother to read it carefully or they well, don't care. Well, you have to have shelter space. That's what the case says. Like, no, it's my the, understanding. The case says it can't be criminal. I've read the decision. So that's right. Words, Unless, uh, that's exactly right. Well, no, you, you can make it criminal if you provide If you provide space. shelter space. That's but right. you don't even have to get to that point. No, you don't. You could do a civil ticket. Exactly. How do or we you can sweep. You can just constantly sweep, sweep, how, sweep, sweep. How, sweep. Do you, how do we enforce traffic laws? We don't arrest people for speeding or even careless driving. We give them tickets. Now, I realize that for some homeless fentanyl addict, handing them a piece of paper, telling them to show up in and court. And that's why Measure 110 is a joke because it gives out tickets that they're allegedly supposed to show up in court for. And these people are, if anybody who's ever tried to sleep on a sidewalk knows, these people are not going to show up to court. No, well, there's They no, don't know what time it is. Well, there's no doubt. I, I campaigned against 110. <laughs> I gave them as much money as I could afford. We well, thank out, you for doing that. We were outspent literally a thousand to one. Because by, you had the Drug Policy Alliance against exactly. you. They, they, they were, well, they just, not just aligned they picked oregon they wanted to yes we are the guinea pig we're the dummies that they knew would pass it well because they wanted to stay big enough where it would make an impact because if doing it in rhode island or wyoming would kind of be kind of weird but they didn't want to go big enough to like california or some other place or even washington where businesses might really push back instead nobody pushed back essentially and the claim was as you know oh this will be great well, instead of, of clogging our jails and prisons with drug users, you know the ref. Well, Josh, I'm one of the dummies who voted for it. I, I just thought, oh, this will reclassify drug crimes, and you know the war on drugs has ultimately been we haven't a had real a, failure. We and, haven't had a war on drugs in Oregon in literally 20, 30 years. I, I remember trying some possession of like heroin cases, I think in the 90s, and those were only when they were fairly aggravated. And you know what the maximum sentence under Oregon sentencing guidelines was? 10 days in jail. Wow. And we didn't even have the jail space. So, I mean, 110 alone, if not changed, may be one of those things. If you're a business and you're looking to either relocate or invest money and you take a tour of Portland, again, you know, there are people on the other side say, oh, these are just haters and they're just, they just want to, you know, take these poor people who suffer from these disabilities and just throw them into the Willamette River and, and abuse them. No, we don't want to do that. We want people to have a chance at a decent life. That's exactly right. We want them to get the help that they need and deserve, which would include things like 
rehab detox and medic medication for severely severely mentally ill people and you can do that while respecting their liberties many states do it absolutely and i think everybody you know addiction is a familiar enough thing every american family is touched by it in some way everybody's got an uncle or a cousin that especially was an now that's exactly or, or an opioid addict right and so you know and and what do you do well many times those people are not super amenable to going into treatment sometimes you have to say you know what uh we're going to take away your car keys or we're not going to give you any more money or you you have to go to this treatment and instead we're you know the, the claim is that well, we're going to be kind. We're going to let people do whatever they want. We're going to let them kill themselves in yeah, it's in like a hospice situation out there. I mean, it's it's these people are on. Well, my mother died with hospice, and it was a lot kinder than this. I believe. Yes, <laughs> that's right. No, this is far worse. It's an open air insane asylum. So on that cheery you, note, <laughs> you and I are aligned on that. But what I'm wondering is like, where is the daylight between us on the death penalty? Because I guess my guess is it's that well, situation where I would say, hey, if it's even one that we screw up, the state shouldn't execute so, them. So then the question, well, okay, that's a good point. So then the question is, presumably you'd, you'd feel equally strongly about imprisoning, say, a 25-year-old man for 20 years for a rape he didn't commit. That would be really offensive yeah, to you, right? Yeah, So me too. Okay, so if you have a criminal justice system you and you use humans and juries, you are never going to have perfection. Of course that's true. Okay, so but death is the ultimate. I mean, you can't reverse that. No, but at some point, I'm one of the few people that will admit this, you have, you have, there's a guy named Cass Sunstein. Yes, uh, he uh, writes the, the constitutional law textbooks. Right, and he wrote a paper in 2005 called, Is Capital Punishment Morally Required a Life-for-Life Trade-Off? And Sunstein, who was a close friend and cabinet member of President Obama, um, I remember talking to Cass about this because I was just about to testify before a Senate committee, and I had read a uh, an early release of this paper, and it was stunning. And I said, Professor, can I, do you mind if I cite this when I testify in Congress? And he went, no, it's fine with me. I said, just to let you know, another member of your college, the University of Chicago, is testifying on the other side on this matter. He says, I don't care. It says what it says. And, of course, and Cass has said afterwards, I'm out of the death penalty business. But what he says in this paper is, what if, and, and not just what if, he says this studies show that those jurisdictions which both have and more importantly use the death penalty can show categorically reductions in murder that correspond to every execution between 7 and 17 innocent victims are not murdered. And he's done this in regression analysis by studying the entire United States. So there's States. deterrence, you're saying? Well, there's always, everybody agrees there's specific deterrence. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you kill Ted Bundy, Ted Bundy doesn't kill anybody else. Yes, but, but you're that, saying, but you're saying that's a little Ted Bundy might look at uh, not, somebody not, else getting executed and say, well, I'm, not, I'm actually not going to kill this person. That, that's, that's one level of general deterrence. I mean, part of it is what level of, of interpersonal violence are we willing to tolerate? 
And, you know, the, I, I'm, that doesn't mean that every kid that, for example, I'm one of my issues is, is animal abuse. I yeah. happen to be crazy about cats and animals in general. And my one little job I have is, is I'm the director of legal affairs for a, a, a national group called Animal Wellness Action. And, and one of the things that, that I have tried to evangelize for 30, 40 years is to treat serious cases of animal abuse seriously because the kind of people that commit really serious animal abuse are also very likely to commit That's acts. exactly right. And that doesn't mean that every kid that tortures a cat is going to become a serial killer. No, but it's an <laughs> early indication. Right. And so to get back to the death penalty, what Sunstein is saying is if you want to have a system where no error can be tolerated, then you have to be willing to say, okay, I'm okay with 10 to 20 innocent murder victims happening for every, going ahead and being murdered because they will continue to be killed. In fact, one of his, uh, I wish I had committed this to memory because it was beautifully said. He said, imagine a realm in which you have no due process, no right of appeal. Your life can be taken from you at any moment with, without with any notice, without cruelty. In fact, this is the realm of homicide. And it's true. And to be blunt, people like you and me are very unlikely to be exposed personally to homicide. It's possible, but it's much less statistically likely. The much more likely are those yes, poor right. souls on the street down there for a variety of reasons. Um, well, you know that we... So we're an outlier... Though, in the sense that our homeless are also killing homeless. Yes, of We course. are unique in the United States for this. I, so I'm part of this coalition that um, Andrea Suarez, who's the head of We Heart Seattle, it's a, it's a homeless outreach nonprofit in Seattle, and Michael Schellenberger started called North America Recovers, and there were 40 of us who were invited to Seattle for a retreat, and I was the only person there from Portland. And I realized very quickly that my data was, so we were all there to share data and we have an, a website called NorthAmericaRecovers.org where we have policy prescriptions that we spent these four days putting together. But we, the first day was spent just sharing data from our various states and compiling that um, with a Kevin Sabat who was worked in drug policy. Kevin. There yeah. you go. Okay, great. So he's great. <laughs> obviously, and very smart. Right. And that's an understatement. Worked in three presidential um, administrations doing drug policy, and he's unique in that he did Clinton, George W., and Obama. So bipartisan White Houses, which is very unique. He's the only one that I know of that's been doing drug policy for both Republicans and Democrats. And he he took all the data together, and he, he the consensus was my data – on stuff like the our homeless population and their access to guns in particular, which is totally bizarre because we're set, we've, we're passing all these anti-gun measures, et cetera. We seem like such an anti-gun state if you're west of the, particularly if you're west of the mountains where all everybody resides. You know, the fact is the Portlanders pick the governor. That's the fact. We are the most populous uh, place in the in the state of Oregon. We are a blue dot in a red sea. But the fact is, we're all most of us are here. 
And um, I understand that that's frustrating for the rest of the state, but um, totally understand well, that. Well, more people live here, so that's... Reasonable. It's just how it works. Um, like you said, demo- we don't always agree with it, but democracy is democracy. And the fact is, it's, it's crazy. So a third of our homeless people are killing um, and, and the victims of... Are, are engaging in, in the victims of homicide. And that doesn't exist anywhere else in the U.S. We are totally unique in that. And our officers are trained to understand that these people are all armed. Well, the, I mean, that's something that police need to be... The, the fact of the matter is America for... Maybe yes, for we're us, obsessed with guns. Well, but we they're in... They, they <laughs> exist at a level... I mean, we're talking about three to four hundred million right. firearms so and that's why it, it doesn't make sense to like ban well, them well we could never roll that back i mean well you there's could. so many floating around well this the, you know, there's another problem the second amendment if people well, really of course of course if, if people yes. really well there, you know other countries don't have this no I believe, they don't you know canada and Aust- australia at one point decided they were going to essentially make guns illegal right and and they were able to do it so you know, one of the things that, you know, the inconveniences is we are this pastiche of not only different cultures and different kinds of people, but also a constitution in some ways which may be outdated. Do we really need, I mean, obviously nobody needs an anti-tank gun to defend themselves. And although the, the you know, the, the difference between an AR-15 and a Ruger 10-22, if you don't know firearms, They'll, I could, if I showed you these two guns, you'd say, well, that one's an assault rifle and that one's just a plinker. Actually, the guns are virtually identical. Um, and so many of the attempts to ban guns are just literally cosmetic and they won't do any good because, A, there's so many of them out there. I mean, one of the issues, and I think Michael Schellenberger is a genius. I mean, I, I do too. I, I wish he'd won the governor's race in California. I subscribe, you know, to, of course, to his, uh, his, uh, his podcast and uh, his, his substack. His substack is really good. And, you know, Leighton Woodhouse, who helps him with his right. substack, was one of the 40 that was with us in Seattle. Yeah. He's great. I think they're, they're visionary. Absolutely. And, and, and we, you know, it's, it's, I'm very glad that you were there, but Oregon needs to contribute, you know, at least five or 10 more people like you and who are willing to, you know, to, to engage. I, I'm not unwilling to do that, but I think your generation, I mean, it needs to be people that are younger. It needs to be people um, that have credibility because I've been in politics and a lot of this is political. I Unless think we issue... can convince the people in the governing class in Salem that they are at risk of losing their positions, whether it's on the Portland City Council or the state attorney general or secretary of state or whatever, until that happens, they will continue to act with the arrogance and disregard. And what it really is, it's a false sense of generosity. What they're saying really is, we're the good-hearted people. We're going to give these people the freedom to, 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 they, to, they to starve on, on, in, in, in the street, to inject you know, fentanyl mixed with God knows what else, and, and that is the ultimate civil liberty. And, 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 we'll, and that's, what we, that's what we'll gift to the next generation. Well, people will flee, as you said, that they already are Portland. And I don't want to see that. I don't think you want to see that. This is a wonderful state. I am an Oregonian by choice. I was born in Los Angeles. 
I went to college and law school here. I've lived in California. I've lived overseas. I want to live in Oregon. Other people do too, but we are making it harder and harder and harder. And in terms of criminal justice, I think what we need, we, we really need to be listening to the people of Oregon. And whether it's the death penalty or Measure 11, I've got a fairly easy short-term solution. Let's send those issues back to the voters. If, in fact, the voters have changed their minds, say, about Measure 11, if they don't want to see people do eight years in prison for rape, they think maybe a judge should give them probation, then let's get rid of Measure 11, but let's have it be an honest election like we had in 1994, like we had in 2000, like we had in 1984 about the death penalty. We've done this over Oregon's history. What's missing now is these sessions in the dark in the legislature by people who never have to account for themselves, who basically go, hey, I didn't know what I was doing. I'm just you know, volunteering my time in Salem. And until we hold these people accountable, I mean, most people have not been to a legislative hearing and they don't really exist anymore. But I would urge people to go online because that's what it, it all happens virtually now. And it's really spooky. And look at the people who are representing the Portland metro area. And I think you will be genuinely terrified. Um, and I think it's just, it's tumbled into this. People have just, you know, uh, floated up to the top somehow to hold these positions of great authority. And partly it is because other people won't stand up. Now, you know, I'm certainly Well, that's willing- true. I mean, for one thing, it just doesn't pay anything. And right. like Richard and Cheverton and I talked about, I think that's why you see all these female physicians floating around. I hadn't thought about it that way. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm almost positive that's why. Because it, I wish that we could bring in some more, frank, frankly, I'd like to see some blue-collar people, some trades in the legislature. I just don't think they can afford it. Well, I don't think an electrician's going to quit their job to go join the Oregon legislature, and they don't have to. But the, the issue is they'd have to at least do part-time, and, and that would require them to take a, an enormous pay cut that a lot of people just can't afford to take. The theory originally, back in the 19th century, was we would have a citizen legislature, and they would meet really short periods, like maybe a month or two every two years. We are now up to at least seven to eight months full-time for a salary of roughly 30000 and then benefits and that add up to another thirty to 40000 But, I mean, come on. If somebody has reached that level of accomplishment for $70,000, I mean, you can, there are a lot of things you can do, probably with a lot less aggravation, and be compensated more than that. They are finally, my understanding is they're finally talking about, because I asked Richard Sheverton this when he came on, I'm like, why don't they just give themselves a raise? This is ridiculous. They're quitting. They are debating doing that. I should say, and about 20 years ago, I ran an op-ed in the Oregonian. That's when they were running op-eds that I wrote, which has been a while, (laughs) called The Pornography of Pay. And it was about this precise issue. And it was that there is a, a culture that makes it almost pornographic to talk about public pay, and particularly when you're in public office. Yeah, and that's I, right. I can speak It's from, an untouchable issue. I mean, when I was district attorney, I was 
let's see, when I started, I was making $52,000 a year as the chief law enforcement officer of Clatsop County. Now, that was in 1994. By 2000, I think I was up to about 115000 Now, that sounds a lot to somebody maybe who's got a minimum wage job, but as you know, in the practice of law, if you are theoretically near the top of your profession, you are going to be making multiple six figures, not one hundred and fifteen thousand dollars. If you're near the top, you're you're in the millions. Right now, even we, in Oregon, we can't. We we're never going to be able to compensate. Say, so I was willing to talk about the profession I was in. I made some very clear life decisions. I got married late in life. My wife and I did not have children. And, and I come from a relatively affluent home, and I inherited, you know, more money than probably most people did. And, and I loved being in public service. I enjoyed it. But you can't count on those kind of things. It's not a good way to work. But I'll, I'll send you what I, what I wrote 20 years ago is true. We've got to be willing to have these conversations and not be, oh, I, I don't want to talk about how much money we're paid. Because the, for the governor of the state of Oregon to make less than $100,000 a year is absurd. And, and, and in other states, what it means is corruption. Now, we don't have that kind of corruption. We don't have people wrapping $50 bills in, around their driver's license when they're pulled over by the state police. All that would get you is a ticket to jail for bribery. But what we do have in Oregon, particularly in Portland, is a much more subtle culture of, oh, you know what, I'll, you know, we'll steer $60 million to your group of non-accountable nonprofits yes. who won't have filed the any 994. complex. That's exactly, exactly. right. Exactly. Richard and Pamela have talked about it a yes. lot in Portland Descent. And, you know, and if you say anything about it, you're a racist. Why? Because many of the groups have, have their affinity around. groups exactly yes. and but they are not part of any democracy they're not elected by anybody but if you if we really looked and said you know what i'm going to give tens hundreds of millions of taxpayer dollars to i don't know groups of people uh, on the coast who all want to fire automatic weapons i mean i'm just taking a particular affinity group why would we do that well, people would say that's outrageous and if there is money that needs to be directed to certain communities, do it in the open. Don't do it. I mean, it seems that more and more of this is being done. And frankly, you know, you get what you pay for. We know this um, in, in our practices and other places. If you, you pay really subpar uh, wages, you're going to get subpar people. And I frankly can look through the 90 people in the Oregon legislature now and I have a hard time getting excited about more than maybe 10 or 12 of them. And, and you know, somebody could say, well, who, you know, who are you to say? I'm just, you know, one person who was in public service for 35 years, and I know an effective legislator when I see them. And I think a lot of other people could say that. I think a lot of the people are there because, because they're easy pushovers, and they're basically just feeding into groups that just are getting shoveled huge amounts of money. If you took the disasters that happened at DMV with its computer system, the Secretary of State's office, the Oregon... Cover Oregon? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Care Oregon, the, the, the entire health plan, what was that, $300 million that literally got flushed? I mean, if anybody else 
their head would be on a pike. They would be unemployable. Instead yeah, it of was. You're right. It was $300 million. And it just, poof, it didn't work. So sorry. You know what? We'll, we'll, we'll use the, the federal program. That was real money. That could have helped real people who really needed it. Um, and we, you know, but I think all Oregon is a small enough state that you can make a difference. It really is possible to get elected to your city council, even possible to get elected to the state legislature. Now, I understand that, you know, if you're a practicing, you know, lawyer like yourself, there's very little incentive to go and be even a part-time or full-time legislator. You know, you, you can probably... There's actually zero. <laughs> The, well, the only incentive is that you have a chance to make your life better and your children children's life better, but you're it's such a it's such an immediate impact on your life to do so and and I don't think that you can effectively, especially if you have a busy trial practice. Not that I go to trial that much anymore. I mean, everybody wants to do everything on Zoom. They're even doing trials on Zoom civil trials especially, but I don't have time to go down to Salem and run a law practice. I mean, my husband, who I practice with, would lose his mind if I said I'm going to run for the legislature. No, but you can support. There are people who can't, and there are people, you know, there are times yes. in our lives where... And I try to find them. Right, and and that's... And I do do that, and, and, and I try to fund them. Right, and what, you know, Schellenbarger is doing in California is remarkable. It's, it's a huge state. It's, its problems in some ways are both worse and better than ours. Right. But Oregon can get overlooked very easy, easily. And well, we I, don't have their money. Well, that's true. We don't have their industry. I don't know that we have hope of getting it. I mean, when you read that Anthony Effinger article in Willamette Week, he talks about how if you make $150,000 as an individual, you are taxed at effectively the same tax rate as a New Yorker making $25 million or more. I know. I, it, For it, what? I mean... Look around. We're we're at the threshold of hell. Well, the argument that the other side was based is, well, you're doing well. If, assuming. Oh, you, I know what they'd say. You're pay, you have to pay your fair share. And 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 they think that's fair. Well, ex except it isn't. And and what we're breeding is a a class of Oregonians, working class Oregonians, who deeply resent having other people's values imposed on them and more importantly the bill for that and saying we don't want to pay for this these crazed people on fentanyl to be wandering yes. the street we're we're you know in in portland i think the city alone which really doesn't have a direct role in it i think it's a per capita expenditure of about thirty five thousand dollars a year that's stunning on what on homeless people oh well <laughs> where to begin i mean metro Multnomah County, Portland City, the joint the joint office, quote unquote, which is Sharon Myron told us on her episode on this podcast, is actually not joint at all. The city writes was writing Deb Kafori a blank check, and they now write Jessica Vega Peterson a blank check. Right, and, and they should pull out of that. Well, and that requires see, but those access points, meaning Metro, City Council, County Commission. They are still places where people, I mean, it, it's accessible. 
I lived in California. I was involved. It is accessible. And in places like California and New York, it, it really right. can look like you're staring up at something that's thousands of feet tall and you just can't reach it. It's reachable here, but that requires people to make that reach. And some of these conversations are going to be tough because um, the other side is going to immediately accuse us of being racist, mean-spirited, selfish, um, you know, racist again. Yeah, but they're going to accuse anybody of that that doesn't fit their ideology anyway because that's the only weapon they have. Well, And it shuts down conversation. It does. It's like calling somebody a communist in the 1960s or, all, you know, at various of times. Of course, in Portland, that would be a compliment That would be today. a compliment now. But there was a time in America, as we talked about before, sort of the era where my father who was a professor in the 1960s that might have ended his career. It, it didn't, but, you know, things change. The difference is that I, you know, Portland, you know, was, was a smaller city. It had potential. It didn't have big industry. But, again, I think we Oregon, because of Portland, is, is approaching a tipping point because places like Astoria and Bend and even Salem cannot make up for it. They, you know, the, the, we don't have uh, the industry or the jobs you know, it's simply not going to happen if it doesn't happen here. And I have to say, just coming to this building today was eye-opening to me. Oh, boy. I, I'm familiar with this district, and, it, you know, it's been about 10 years since, and I was shocked. I mean, this is a real prestige address, or at least it used well, to be. Well, it used to be. Um, and I didn't realize, so things are happening that fast. But how many people, even in Portland, come to downtown? How many people you know, go to these buildings. I'm just looking at myself. I've been in government for almost 40 years, and I'm just realizing from a couple of visits to Portland how bad it is. Now, what we have to do... Describe is, for us, because for us, it's obvious. For me, it's obvious, because I come here almost every day. Describe to us what you're seeing, because for people who aren't coming downtown, and that would be most people who are listening to this, describe what you're seeing and... and I just want people to understand this is not a Fox News talking point. Yeah, I mean, I, there, there's no joy in this, and certainly no I told you so. As someone who's never lived in Portland but has come here to go to dinner and shop and stay in the hotels, what, just today what I now see at, adjacent to nice restaurants or hotels, I see Homeless people who are clearly out of their mind, wandering in the streets. People, I mean, a lot. If if that was happening, I know. For example, we have that problem in Astoria. We know most of those people's names. It, it, here, it's it's far beyond that. It literally has gone beyond the grasp. If you're in the core downtown, you literally cannot look at two major buildings next to each other without seeing one that is clearly in major decay where the ground floor is being taken over and it's it's also obvious that by bodies by tents and and by plywood if if i were a young woman which i'm not i would be very very leery about walking the streets of portland and i notice oh i don't i'm not young but i don't anymore well, and, and I noticed, even as I was coming in here earlier, 
there was some traffic on the street, it, people that I would think of as young people, but I, it was right around 2 o'clock, 2.30. People were rushing to sort of get off the streets. I, I mean, I, this sounds kind of crazy, but I'm thinking of some of, you know, these scary movies about, yeah. you know, oh, the, you know, the vampires will come out when the sun goes down. The irony is, of course, it's not vampires, and these, you know, the, the people that are the greatest danger are mostly a danger to themselves. Yes. But they are a danger. Or to other them. homeless people. But, but if we just keep allowing this to happen and, and claiming that it's out of kindness and that we're doing it because we respect them, that would be like if we had a child and the child was endlessly throwing tantrums and smashing out windows and turning the toilet upside down and all we ever did is pat the child on the head and say we love you and we know we'll, you know we will love you no matter what you do at some point that is not parenting that's that, that's something that I don't think we have a name for and and it's not killing with kindness because it's not kindness it's it's a it's a level of irresponsibility um, that is I think that as members of a civilized society, we owe to each other. And, 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 and there's, it's going to be a bumpy ride to get past it because the people who have their claws dug in to some of the positions of power in Portland, in the state of Oregon, are not going to let go of that. Yeah, easily. well, that's because, Josh, that is the only industry in this state besides government that I can think of that is thriving, is the homeless industrial complex. <laughs> and part of the reason is because it is so heavily publicly funded, these are all practically public entities. That's true. Yeah. And, and, you know, and trying to trace the money of where it comes from, as you say, you know, the, the, the Portland and Multnomah County and the co-office, as you say, from just watching the news, apparently they don't speak to each other. The they city, don't. The city and the county hate each other or they just end up pointing fingers at each they other. They do. And I don't know if you read The Atlantic. I, I do. do. And there was a big article um, I subscribed, so I, I just read it. It's by their chief editor. And and they talk about Portland a lot. Unfortunately, I think they miss it. The, 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 the genesis of I got from it is Portland is, is an example of how fractured America has gone. There's some truth in this. We have this huge, you know, right-wing group of violent people and this huge left-wing group of violent people, and they've come together on the streets of Portland, and the city of Portland is helpless. They've tried to stop it, but they can't. America's... You know, uh, the new anarchy. Right. Is that what it is? March it, 6, 2023. Yeah. Adrian LaFrance. Yes, who's the executive editor of Atlantic. America faces a type of extremist violence. It does not know how to stop. She's right in part because, like I like to say, there's a little bit of truth in everything. And there's actually a lot of truth in that article. But until, you know, it, and, it, and, and to basically absolve the city and and local and municipal government of responsibility by saying, oh, they're just overwhelmed by this division. Yes, there is division in America. Now, you may not be old enough to remember this. I remember what it was like in the wake of the Vietnam War in the late 1960s. We had civil rights riots basically burning down the major cities that in the was, United was States. Was that largely, is it true that that was largely a generational division between, like, let's say, people in their 20s and their parents? I don't know. No, I don't think so. I think it was a combination of things. I think, for one thing, 
uh, racism was incredibly real. Yeah. Segregation had just been made illegal, but it was being resisted by the white power structure in at least the American South. And yes, there was a generational pushback. Certainly a lot of young black people said to no more, and for very good reason. But then you mixed into that a war in Vietnam where largely poorer uh, both young white and black men were sent to die, whereas older, richer white young men like George Bush and Bill Clinton and other people had outs. Now, there's, you know, we can revisit all those old grievances and say, well, that's not fair and that's not fair. But we came pretty close to the United States being torn asunder. If we look back at the riots, in the streets at 65, 66, 67, 68, 69, and think of what happened back then. Martin Luther King was assassinated and Robert Kennedy in the same year in 1968. Now, my point is not a history lesson. It's that America has had hard times before. We've been divided. Um, some of these things, there's nothing really new in the world, but the way we respond to it can be very different. And, and, and what's, and, you know, everything is local. <laughs> All politics are local. And what we have to start with is where we live. And we live here. And at some point, we've got to say no more. I don't care what names you call me. I don't care, you know, what illusions you want to say, or what tag you want to put on somebody uh, that, that you think will make them basically untouchables. Um, we've got to be willing to go beyond that. Now, it's easier for someone like me to say this. I'm 70 years old. I've had a great career. You do not look 70. <laughs> That's just good. Are my... you serious? Yes, of course. It's actually... Are you 70 years old? Of course I am. It's, it, there's one very simple reason. And that's because of my hair color. You look forty something. Well, that's because my, it my. It's not just that. It, it is that. It's actually if you take if you change a man's hair color, it completely. Well, that's part of it. it I, and off. you have a fair amount of hair, but it's <laughs> also you don't have a wrinkly face. Well, you have I'll, a very smooth face. <laughs> I'll remind my wife of well, that. Well, you should. <laughs> I mean, I don't. Your genetics are incredible. Well, I'm. I'm very. I. I hit the lottery in that regard. A billion percent. <laughs> but you know, we. But we can do it. And but but it. Ha but again, it's it's easier for me to say because even if I want to be part of the battle, which I will, I. Don't, I'm not going to have to pay much of a cost if they decide that they're going to, uh, and they have in some regards. You know, call me out and say I'm an untouchable. You know, I can just move to another state or I can just tune them out and listen to something else. You know, I understand that if you're in your 30s and your 40s, you're in public life, you want to run for office. We've got to be willing to stand up. There have been times in America where people showed courage in the face of that. In the American Civil Rights Movement of the 1960s, of the anti-war movement in the early 1970s, I watched that. My father was part of that. Um, you know, there have been you know there have been times when Americans have risen to these challenges, and people in Portland can do that too. But the hardest thing to overcome is going to be this idea that you, by stating certain views, are an untouchable or that you have expressed untouchable views. And I commend you for, for willing to say this and to broadcast it because it Thank needs you. to be said. Because when I read, you know, I was having lunch with a former reporter for the Oregonian for coming over here. And 
he reminded me that the Oregonian has gone from 440 reporters to less than 50. Wow. I didn't realize it was that. but That's it, very it, sad. It, it is. And whatever you think of the Oregonian, and I have Yes, yeah, I agree with you. Whatever you feelings. think of the Oregonian, that's not a good thing. We need a, a daily press. Now, things are diversifying, podcasts, things like Portland Descent. I frankly take much more seriously what I read coming from Richard and Pamela than what I do with the Oregonian. A lot of Oregonian. people do. Um, but I've had, I, I'm dumb enough that I still try to engage some of the new a generation of reporters. There was a story about a bill, a really crazy bill in the legislature, Senate Bill 698, that would essentially uh, auto-erase approximately 300,000 felonies. Essentially, 95% of all crimes except what are called Class A felonies like you first You tweeted degree. about this. Yeah. It, yeah. it was just... And I don't know if this I don't know if this is just a crazy bill or if it's a bill that actually has legs. It is sponsored by a, a Eugene state senator and a Portland state senator. And I don't know how anybody who has the most basic knowledge of the criminal justice system. Who's could the pop- Portland senator? Um, Gorsuch, Chris Gorsuch, who I gave money to when wow. he first ran because he ran as a former police officer. And I thought, oh. Here's a pro-law enforcement Democrat. I'll give money to him. And if you don't believe me, you can look my name up or anybody else's on something called Orstar. If you give more than 50 bucks, that's right. you can look anybody's name up because in Oregon they have to. And I have, you know, you can, you can, you can look my name up or anybody else's to see if they put their money where their mouth is. Now, you don't have to give money to be involved in politics. It's, it's one way to do it and, it. and sometimes it's too easy. But, you know... What's going on in Salem, I, I really don't think, you know, that the, the children or horses are safe until July because it'll be one crazy idea after another. And most of the time, they frankly don't have the attention span to carry the bills through. And, they, and so they'll mostly sort of wander off and die like some sort of mutant. But in some cases... Well, I hope that happens with a lot of these. Did you hear about Confam's bill to give every homeless person $1,000 a month? I did, in cash. Yes. So it could be specifically used for illegal drugs. I'm sorry, they're not illegal. We might no. Well, they're decriminalized. We might as well just hand it to the cartel, right? And you know, there's a there's a very interesting story of a of a newspaper in Kentucky. I will send it to you. Who came to Seaside in the county where I was district attorney and showed a distinct correlation between a particular cartel in Mexico and that was that was moving methamphetamine up. And of all places, Seaside, which is part of the county I was DA of for 25 years, I had never heard of this. And, of course, they reported this, and I'm sure it's not a one-off. It's not just Seaside. It's, I'm sure there's a corollary for probably every town of between five and 10,000. Seaside's only about six or 7,000 people. And, you know, and it, this is Yeah, are you talking about the, the recent article about the cartel in Seaside? Yes. The, the very recent by the AP. Well, it, I think, it got picked up by the I AP. I think it got picked up by, it was originally a newspaper in, in the Louisville Courier exactly. Journal. Right. Was, they were bizarrely were the ones, maybe because they've been so darn affected by these pill mills. 
Um, and, and then, of course, the cartels swoop in to replace when the doctors get busted and stop oh, prescribing. Pill, pill mills have been gone for 20 years. Right. And so that now the cartels are sweeping in well, with all those people well, the, who get the, addicted, the, right? Well, the drugs that are out there now are... I mean, well, isn't it all fentanyl? Yeah, it's all fentanyl. It's not. It has. It, it's made to look like oxycodone, but but it, it isn't. also gets you well. It does get you well if you're addicted to opioids, is my understanding. You're it, not going to yeah. sweat and poop yourself. Maybe, but the drug, but the the, the margin of safety is so. Oh, tiny. there's no margin of safety. <laughs> I mean, I. I mean, <laughs> from a public health standpoint, we would be happy to get. No, this is all poisoning. Back. This is all poisoning. That's exactly I mean, right. The irony is, eventually, they will kill off all their customers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, so I had Tom Wolf on here, who's a former addict and well he'd say he's a recovering addict and always an addict and he was homeless in the tenderloin and he is part of our north america recovers coalition he's wonderful and he said fentanyl kills people on average and he's very knowledgeable about all this and on average in about two years it's like it's just long enough to wreak havoc on society and just long enough to create some some mules and sex traffickers and whatever they need the cartel needs to be done in exchange for drugs and then you know maybe the last year or six months is just very late stage end stage drug addiction and then eventually they die and he said death is near almost inevitable well part of it is that i mean the 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 safety margin again with heroin you know um one of the things they use narcan and it's it it, what, what it does is basically almost immediately reverses the effect of the opioid. Yeah, not course, true with fentanyl. With fentanyl, it's so great that sometimes they have to power three, four doses. And this drug is not necessarily that cheap, and it's hard for emergency services. I know one of the the pushes is, well, let's just make it available. I get that um, if you, it, it may be a good idea to save a life, but if that same person is using it as nothing more than a buffer, but we can't be drug specific because we have a whole other problem with methamphetamine, which, yes. for example, there is no um, magic drug like Narcan. No, there's and, not. And methamphetamine is different in that um, a person who is high on heroin or fentanyl is mostly going to crawl in a corner and go to sleep. They are they're going to be They're sleepy. A, they're tired. They're yeah. it's it's a depressant. They're going to be blissed out if they're lucky. Right. Um, with methamphetamine it's the opposite. They become uh, agitated, angry, hypersexual um, and and so you're talking about a drug that that is not only addictive psychologically and physically, but it will manifest itself in an criminal outside behaviors and and it's not and unlike uh, the person who's overdosing on fentanyl if you can get enough narcan into him you can save them for that moment there's no corollary with meth ironically the meth probably won't kill them as fast but it will make them a highly destructive individual and well and there, it's a new meth right because you well, read the sam quinones article in the atlantic about the this phenol propanone meth p2p well, meth I read that. Actually, Sam and I went to the same high school 20 years apart. Oh, that's amazing. In Southern California. That's amazing. But what he's talking about is what we used to call P2P. Yes. He calls it that in the article. <laughs> I know. The, this is a generational thing. When I started off in law enforcement in the late 70s, that was how meth was made. It was called... It was? Yes. It was the old-fashioned... That's the old biker meth? P2P yes, meth? Exactly. Because it was a lot more... How com- come we didn't have all the zombies then? 
Well, it, it was confined, methamphetamine use was confined basically to biker, biker gangs. Bikers and truckers. And, yeah, well, and truckers were using ordinary amphetamines, not okay. methamphetamines. You didn't have this explosion out into the community, and you, it, it, was a, it was a felony to possess it. Right, right, <laughs> I right. I mean, there were major, even if somebody didn't go to prison or jail, you know, let's say just ordinary Joe didn't want to lose his driver's license, or he didn't want to lose his plumber's license, or he certainly didn't want to lose his license, um, you know, to be a teacher, or he didn't want to be a felon so he couldn't buy a gun. I mean, there are all these collateral reasons that discourage people from using these drugs. They're all gone now in Oregon and uniquely in Oregon. And so what are we going to expect? We're going to expect an inward uh, uh, migration that probably won't be picked up by the census of people that we really don't want here because word is going up and down the West Coast that, hey, you know what, come to Portland because they'll, you know, they'll give you a tent and they'll give you money, maybe even a thousand bucks in cash. Now, maybe that particular crazy idea will expire, but other ones won't. And we've just got to get to the point where we realize that this is not we're not killing people with kindness. This is this is no. We're just literally killing them. Well, it's just a, it's a kind of cruelty because it's a cruelty of righteousness. It's these people saying, "Well, we are standing up for the oppressed, and we are going to you know give them what they want." And and you know, and you're just a uh, a narrow-minded white person. You're a privileged white person. You're a privileged white person, count. and you just can't understand why this person might want to numb themselves from the unfairness from the trauma of that they've been through. And to you know, to their credit, most of them have experience. It's probably ninety percent have experienced a fair amount of trauma. But we've created this, like you've said, we've created this victimization culture where we've got this class of people to every to whom everything is given and nothing is required. Right. And 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 any of the traditional governors, I mean, you know, sometimes it was jail or we're going to take away your license. I mean, one of the things about measure 110, which would be a real small starting point. Let's just repeal that just to start. Is if you if you have if you win the incredible lottery of actually getting a measure 110 ticket and by the way that's about the likelihood there have only been a few hundred of them issued as opposed to the tens of thousands of complaints that were filed before that was done it's because there's no incentive for police to do it but so in that small number they get a ticket written there's no consequence right. if they don't show up they don't lose your license I was a uh, pro tem judge. I think it's a fine. I think it's a $100 fine. No, it's actually, when I was a part-time judge, I got a memo from Salem, from the state court administrator, and they said our recommendation, meaning this is what we want you to do as judges, is fine $25 on measure 110. And uh, and keep finding for twenty five dollars because they just can't afford. So a hundred is the max. Hundred is the theoretical max, but it's not what judges. They are doing. have discretion, of and course. so they could. They don't have to impose a fine. They could say one dollar. They could say fifty cents, but it doesn't. So matter you're saying they have to impose a fine, but it could be any limited it could amount. Be, it could, it could well, be a penny. It could be anything, and if the judge is so inclined... Well, they could dismiss the whole thing, right? So, Well, the theory was that you would confront the addict with this citation, and they would be so afraid of the citation that they would row against years of physical addiction and voluntarily present themselves to a treatment facility and go through the agonizing withdrawal, well, hopefully, or maybe, or nonetheless, the very difficult 
process of recovery. And that, of course, is insane because, again, you don't have to uh, personally know a, a fentanyl or a methamphetamine addict to know what addiction does to people. And the fact is that people are always going to seek the easy way out. And, you know, you know, simple answers like, well, you can't jail your way out of that. No, you can't. But you similarly just can't wish your way out of it. And, you know, Oregon, you know, is still a special place. It still can be. Um, and I just would rather, you know, start seeing things improve the next time I come to Portland rather than get worse. Unfortunately, I don't think that's going to happen the next time you come. But Well, maybe the time after that. I, do you have hope for that? I do. I, uh, you know, I'm. What I've, do you base that hope on? I just, I, you know, give us, give us some, give us a pep talk here. Well, I think, uh, you know, uh, America is a is a wonderful idea. I realize that that's a two hundred and fifty year old idea, but I have seen communities, my community, come together for all kinds of small things. I mean, just little things like a house burns down and people don't have insurance and, 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 and you know, people provide the, f- the food and the clothing and they gather money out of their own pockets. Some of these kindnesses are small and they're not policy-based. I get that. And you can't. I'm not one of those ultra-conservatives that think you can run everything basically on, on the kindness of a church or something. You need bureaucracies in place but what we have now is crazy there's no disincentive for antisocial behavior there's no incentive for to, to to act within the law or even to treat other people's property with respect i mean the idea that in the great in the most populous richest city of the state we are having to hide in the upper floors of the best buildings of this city I just find that terrifying. And I really didn't realize that until my trip today. And Really? Yeah. I mean, I... Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so mean, you didn't realize how bad it was here? Nope. I when, mean, when was the last time you were in Portland? I don't know, probably a couple of weeks, maybe a month ago. But are I hadn't, you, are been, you to, serious? I hadn't okay. been to a law office. I mean, I know this address. This is a very prestigious address. And, and it I... Was. It was. And, and so... You know, it's We've lost every, all our anchors, as you can see, if you walk right. around the building. Every I, I anchor, every anchor retail, Goldmark Jewelers, they were in business for seven years. They're gone. Um, you know, I mean, poor David Margulies. That Margulies Jewelers yeah. on uh, Broadway, that's not my street, but that's gone. And that was really hard to watch. I mean, he was in business for almost 100, his family, that was almost 100 years. No, I mean, I, 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 I'm, my wife says that I'm... I'm pretty traditional and not adventurous enough in my restaurant taste but you know i like classics like jake's Jake's, and jake's is still there but it is still there almost everything around it is falling apart well and like you said you're not going to enjoy a nice meal with a homeless person having a psychotic episode clearly what was happening what's interesting is the reporter who i've deliberately have not named former reporter from portland sitting right next to me at a window table and i said did you see that? And he said no. And I don't think he was deliberately. I think no, it I just think be- you don't see it anymore. It becomes part of the. You know, of, it's part of the landscape. Right. It's like the smoke alarm going off in the background. Some, and then the neighbor comes over and they go, "Don't you want to change the battery in that thing?" And you just aren't hearing it anymore. Right. And that's 
one of it's the frog in the pot like you said yeah and you know it's it's and then except the, the frog in this case is the people of the state of Oregon and the government of Oregon and it's not a frog that'll be boiled it'll be the social cohesion and what happens when people no longer trust their government is you get essentially fascist states and i don't want to live and i that that is an extreme i don't think that's a likely scenario but um, Americans get, tend to be very smug in the fact that America has lasted for a long time and has stood up to a lot of challenges. But it's very interesting to, to I, I'm very fond of Italy, even though I have no Italian ethnicity. Italy has had over 75 governments since World War II. You know, the distance between sort of social cohesion and chaos is narrow. And I think what's happening in certain parts of America, and now our part of America, is that's becoming so. And what, at a very base level, and I need to end with this, is we need to start having the courage to call out our elected officials. Now, you're doing that, and the people at Portland Descent are doing that, and I'm trying to do that, and a lot of people in different ways are trying to do that. But I think... Uh, we've got to separate ourselves from political labels. This can't be a, a, a Republican or Democrat thing. Um, it can't be a conservative or liberal thing. And it can't be just for, for our own self-benefit. Um, you know, for many of us, you know, I have choices. I can choose to continue living in Oregon or choose not to. Um, and, you know, it's not going to probably make a personal difference to me. But that's the whole point of community is that, um, you know, we all throw our social capital in with our political capital together. And because if it, if it doesn't happen that way, it, it, it literally, you know, will be the boiled frog. And I, I don't want to be part of a boiled frog. I got to ask you one more question before you okay. take off. We, some listeners asked why, and I know Betsy Johnson is a friend of yours, and I really like Betsy Johnson. And um, but a lot of people asked why you didn't vote for Drazen just out of practicality, given the polls, given how close, how bizarrely close that governor's race was and how, you know, every it seemed like every individual vote probably did count. Well, I I don't think Drazen had really any more really of a statistical chance than Betsy did. I realized. Really? Yeah. For several reasons. For one thing, um, Drazen had some very problematic votes. She was one of the people, one of two legislators that ran, a, remember I had told you about how Juvenile Measure 11 was abolished in 2019? Yeah. Christine Drazen ran away from that bill. She refused to take a no vote. She was asked about this by Dan Tilkin. Did she abstain? No, she was excused. She literally ran from the legislature on one of the most important votes. Now, I happen to be pro-choice on abortion. I feel pretty I strongly too. about that. And I and she was saying, well, I'm anti-abortion, and I'll do everything I can. I saw... See, I, I wasn't hearing her say that. I was hearing her say, I personally right. am anti-abortion, but this the voters have said they want no limits on abortion, so right. have at it. Well, and to, I think that's one of the most pro-choice things I've ever heard a Republican say into a mic. Well, it's it's go the, ahead and abort your baby at nine months if you want to. I might personally disagree, but I won't touch well, the that. The fact of the matter is that the governor of Oregon, regardless of who they are, doesn't have the opportunity to stop 
certainly doesn't have the ability to stop abortion. abortion. Nobody in this state understands that. Well, That's what Tina that, Kotek ran on. That was a trick. Oh, I understand that. Basically, yeah. It and was, this state, nobody is no, it, is civically minded enough to understand well, that. You're right. She she tricked an awful lot of people into saying, "Oh my goodness, if we don't vote for Tina Kotek, our right to choice is gone," which is nonsense. It wouldn't matter who of the three people. I here. know, but but I don't but the, think well, the state knows but that. But the but the other problem is that this was a fifty million dollar campaign. Here's what was interesting to me. Betsy Johnson's campaign was 10% funded by out-of-state. Um, Drazen's was 50% funded by out-of-state. Kotex was 85% funded by out-of-state. So essentially you had enormous Well, it's because of, of the parties, though, right? Isn't it? Largely because of the parties and their sort of constituent groups and the unions in the case of the Democrats yes. and certain business interests. Certain corporations in terms you know, of the Republicans, the, yeah. I have some, you know, some hills that I will die on. And one of them is criminal justice. And I like Christine Drazen. I met her. I worked with her on a couple things. I saw a real lack of courage and the ability, um, you know, we talked about Wayne Morse and, you know, who is sort of the ultimate example of somebody who held enormous high power, was a United States senator and was willing to forfeit that for what he believed in. I didn't see Christine Drazen willing to basically, and frankly, even on abortion. I happen to be pro-choice, but if she feels as strongly as she does, why is she taking that position? I get it. She wanted to get elected. She wanted to. But she could have said, I'm pro-choice. She could have just lied. Well, if she had, um, there are. She could have been like a Schwarzenegger Republican. Yeah, but she would have lost a huge swath of Republican votes who would have been terrified. I can assure you, the Republican Party was terrified that they might flip over to Betsy. Now, part of the reason I think, I I don't fault Betsy one iota for for pulling out of the race because I think the choices were were almost non-existent. Um, do I think it would be? Well, a I don't bit, know that she pulled out. What do you mean by pulling out of the race? She well, didn't pull out. No, no. I said people who urged oh. Johnson to say, you know, uh, you know, you can't win. For one thing. That I do wish she'd ran as a Democrat, but I think she just felt like she couldn't beat Tina I can, as I a Democrat. I can tell you personally, as someone who was urged repeatedly to run for attorney general, that and I've been a Democrat all my life, sometimes a very active one. I've been a superdelegate the National no, I was Convention. never a superdelegate. But nonetheless, I know I would never make it out of a Democratic primary because the the organized DPO, Democratic Party of Oregon, would never allow somebody like me or you. They would throw everything. Or Betsy, you're saying. Exactly. And so Betsy's only choice was to... Now, I see what maybe, you're maybe, I think... Couldn't she buck that, though? Because, like, look at Jamie McLeod Skinner. Now, that's a great example. We, the, Kurt Schrader was a, our, a legislator. Right. And Biden backed him. Biden campaigned for him. Jamie McLeod Skinner was from Central Oregon, and she was running to the left as a Democrat to the far left, left yes. far left of Schrader. Right. And pe- the Democrats decided to back her. Right, they wanted even to, though the machine was behind. Sh- the machine was behind well, Schrader. The machine wasn't really behind Schrader. Schrader was a blue dog Democrat, and I believe a lot of the Democratic Party of Oregon wanted to punish him for his 
failure to adhere well, to the democratic and orthodoxy they did. and they backed you know basically a far leftist they screwed and they themselves and they lost a seat in congress yeah they backed an extremist candidate just like what happened up in up in washington they got rid of the, um that uh, that very moderate herrera B- jamie Butler. Herrera Butler. yeah they got rid of her and they and it w- <laughs> they backed a, a more extremist candidate right and then, of course, Jamie, who was great is and very moderate, is out. And now, now they have screwed themselves, and they've got some Democrat who's far left of a Schrader type. I mean, they're about as left as McLeod Skinner. I think one of the, I mean, this is really big picture stuff. But, you know, one of the things we really have to get away from is the party system because it's... Well, I don't disagree. It, it's poisoning... Uh, Oregon in particular, because, you know, I've been, I have gone to, attended in one fashion or another, every legislative session since 1981. And I understand the enormous frustration of the Republican legislators. It's almost as though they shouldn't even bother to show up. There, There is no incentive except in the most extreme circumstances to even, and in many cases, if you drew a map of Oregon, the entire, there are 36 counties, there are exactly seven that vote Democratic. I happen to live in one of them, and you live in one of them, but most of the counties in eastern Oregon and southern Oregon predictably vote Republican. In many ways, those people are disenfranchised. Oh, totally. And, and, and yeah, what Portland is decides the governor. They don't get to decide anything like and that. And what does that breed? That breeds resentment. Resentment. And, you know, I'm going to get mine and we're going to punish you or we're going to make, you know, our place a haven and a hell for you, you know. And, and I don't know what the solution is. Part of it, maybe, you know, you can't get rid of parties, but I think we need to do something to reduce the power of the party. One very small, and let me end on that, and then I do have to yeah, drive sorry. two hours to I, and I appreciate you answering no, that no, last I, question. Is that, is to, there'd be two offices that we should make nonpartisan. And those are Attorney General and Secretary of State. And the reason is that there's no such thing as a Democratic Attorney General and a Republican Attorney General. That job is to be the lawyer for the state of Oregon and to lead the criminal appeals and do all the various other things to be a good lawyer for the agencies of the state. It is not a political office. The woman who is currently Attorney General, Ellen Ellen Rosenblum, is the most political AG that there's been in 50 years. There have been Republicans, Dave Frohmeyer. They have been Democrats, Ted Kulingowski. And the, you know they were um, they were very moderate, v- very moderate, and frankly would have had a relatively hard, apolitical. You would have had a hard time identifying them. Yes. Same thing with the Secretary of State, Phil Keesling, who is at PSU now, great Secretary of State. I think at least eight years. Now we have a woman who is hyper hyper political, and this would be a small step. Shamia Fagan. Shamia Fagan. Um, and I'm not talking about making the governorship nonpartisan because that probably wouldn't work. I'm not talking about getting it out of the, of the state legislature. We, we don't, we have other district attorneys and judges were changed in the late 1970s. They used to run as Democrats and Republicans. And then it dawned quite reasonably on Oregon lawmakers that what is a Democratic DA and what is a... That makes no sense. There should not be that 
denomination. And by but yet everybody still wants to know. It's the same thing in city council, and yet one of the most Googled searches, if you type in Renee Gonzalez, is, is Renee Gonzalez a Republican? Really? I yes. didn't know that. Yes. Everybody, but, I mean, he's a lifelong Democrat. But, every, but he did win. He did win. But, I, you know, I think everybody was able to verify that he was a lifelong Democrat and move on and not be tricked by the Joanne Hardesty campaign that he was some kind of well, closet Republican. But I think part of that was people were just so appalled by Hardesty that they just said, we just can't. I mean, I, I wish Vadim had not run against Renee or we could have had two city council seats instead of just one, but could have, would have, should exactly right. Yeah. But... Well, Josh, but I'm thank glad you that for you having came me. In. And uh, I really appreciate you coming in. It's been really fun, and safe travels. Thank you very much.